This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. today I guess we're gonna do something a little different from what we normally do which is like spend three hours investigating a famous person for like how sus they are mm-hmm. and instead well uh, yeah that, that's what we normally do <laughs> that's what we normally do yeah that's what we normally uh, do uh, yeah. as 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 was heard in our most recent sus Chomsky episode you know yes. that's uh, kind of the stock and trade of mm. um of subliminal jihad but we are you know we are not full-on doomers uh and i think we do have figures that we admire and view positively mm-hmm. and yeah. the subject yeah. of today's episode is probably the most admired person for me uh, that we've covered on the podcast so far yeah. and at, as we'll see there are a lot of aspects to this person Paul Leroy Robeson that kind of intersect with like a few different like lines of inquiry or like you know areas that we've delved into a lot like mm-hmm. theater life. Yeah. uh Marxist politics uh mm-hmm. Pro and MK Ultra yeah um Hollywood the stage like theatricality uh the mm-hmm. interplay between theatricality and politics and yeah. uh and the music industry uh, in a way as well mm-hmm. definitely yeah. yeah yeah so I mean I, Paul I think... Robeson lived in a time where like the world of music like live performance like recording like you know music recordings were uh increasingly a thing but live performance was still like very central uh and so mm-hmm. like the worlds of like theater and of like live music performance those things were like very connected uh more so than perhaps we associate them today and like theater was you know uh more mainstream it's uh, theater has been like increasingly like live theater has been increasingly like sort of marginalized and subculturalized but he was like a super you know uh his theatrical performances made him like a superstar you know in a way that like now like you know if someone's a superstar in theater they got to cross over to like hollywood to really be you know not that right didn't do that also he was in like the showboat movie and everything uh 
know. he did he yeah. did but as we'll get to had a very kind of archetypally negative experience with hollywood and i think is like yeah. really instructive i mean even even before we get to the uh, the subject of kind of like uh, uh, Paul Robeson's political life and political philosophies, um, I think it's it just kind of setting him up in a frame here. I think there's so many interesting things about his life, but I think to start out with, for anybody that's like not too familiar with him, it he is one of the most probably accomplished um, just Americans. Uh, like you know like just not even talking about african americans though he's arguably one of the most uh, distinguished and accomplished uh, you know individuals uh, in african american history but really just american history as well and even as a like public figure and a celebrity it's hard to fathom today somebody that would have the level of stature that yeah, paul robson really achieved is. he's like a like, combination I, of like Colin Kaepernick, like, like uh, not even, not no, uh, I, I like, wouldn't even. I'm gonna force you to retract that right now because not to like well, you know bag on Kaepernick. Like, but, it's like if you, you took know. Colin Kaepernick and like combined him with like someone, you know, you have to combine him with someone else to like you know. Get I to the I would almost say it's more like, like you know taking like LeBron James and like Denzel Washington and Malcolm X. Yeah, like minus like minus the X, Islam. Like, Malcolm X uh, on his own is kind of like you know as big of like a, a political figure. I feel like as as Paul Robeson. Although he is one thing I will say is that Malcolm X is more well known now. Exactly, um, which is interesting. Exactly. Uh, that, that's but, a huge thing about. That's what. I, yeah, I, I, that's kind of like. Yeah, that's really the thing with it is that he was so preeminent in like multiple different fields. And then had this entire kind of life of political activism and basically is unknown. I mean, we're recording this at the end of Black History Month. And I think besides maybe some like socialist type accounts that, you know, you would follow on Twitter or something in terms of the mainstream of like celebrating, you know, black figures in history, Paul Robeson is almost uniformly always left out of the conversation right yeah. like he has just been quietly sort of like downplayed and virtually effectively erased to the point where a lot of people hardly even remember him or if they do it's because like oh yeah didn't he sing old man river or something yeah. or even if they basically yeah, you know I don't are aware know. of yeah, his like activism knows old there's man like river layers of like it these, yeah i don't know it yeah that's the uh, thing yeah, now i think I it mean, might be because yeah. Yeah, like, uh, he, for one, like, uh, the arena that he was in, you know, you can compare him maybe to Muhammad Ali, you know, uh, mm -hmm. but the arena that he was in of, like, singing, it was not as, like, hyper-masculine or, like, as, you know, uh, like... Uh, as my, like a direct allegory maybe for 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 politics or as an easily accessible one as as Muhammad as Muhammad Ali's sport of, of boxing, uh, mm -hmm. and you know he didn't obviously he wasn't assassinated in a spectacular way he wasn't like uh, and also you know maybe part of it is that like the those figures came later like in the heat of the sixties like uh, where yeah. television was more taking off and the the media. Uh, culture which was able to sort of latch on to, to them a bit more like and to, to to engage them a bit more uh mm -hmm. but yeah it definitely it's yeah i think also maybe it's because of his you know as you mentioned like his more direct connection with with communism um mm -hmm. because even though those figures obviously resisted like imperialism in various ways uh and spoke out against it like very forcefully and made sacrifices to fight against it paul robeson maybe 
you know, was uh, more directly aligned, uh, at least in the popular imagination, and, you know, to an extent, like, in his actual politics with, like, uh, communism, like, big C communism, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, big C. Yeah. Big C. That mm-hmm. That is a thing that, and, and even when people kind of will mention Paul Robeson, that is something that is either a little bit downplayed now, like, they might be more apt to describe him as, like, a socialist or just, like, a progressive, or they would say it as kind of like, yes, you know, he was so great and brilliant but you know he wasn't perfect he said nice things about stalin you know that kind of thing and Mm -hmm. um but like really there hasn't been much of a reckoning at all with uh you know basically with his legacy and i mean i would also say just as an aside like we'll we'll kind of get into like his political stances but he's also probably like the american socialist or communist that i kind of admire the most in terms of the positions that he took and the way he articulated kind of what he was advocating and his uh because even though he was pretty much a a big c communist he never was an official member of any communist party and was very supportive of the soviet union but at the same time uh you know spoke in a very kind of american language about uh, you know, I think he was incredibly skilled at sort of translating the appeal of something like Marxism or Marxist politics uh, into an American context, into an African American context, in like an American labor context, and uh, and I think that was one of the things that like made him particularly dangerous and like made people like Jay Hoover feel that they really had to like neutralize him somehow and yeah. as we'll see down the line i think they 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 pulled it off though you know they they didn't kill him but they took him out of the game right as like the 60s were beginning and the civil rights movement was going to so it's like whereas you know i think that the us government had uh basically you know heavy involvement in both the killing of malcolm x and martin luther king but kind of let them grow in influence for a number of years before deciding that they were going too far and they were dangerous it's like paul robeson wasn't even allowed to like show up to the civil rights movement because he was like he would have taken it he would have offered a perspective and he was so persuasive and uh and beloved by lots of people i mean we'll, we'll talk about the incident that kind of like catalyzed like his his disappearance from the public scene but it's very sus and sinister and uh and fascinating yeah and i mean he did like do a lot of like on the ground like activism uh you know but maybe before like the beginning of like the civil rights movement proper like being sort of initiated like associated with martin luther king like but he did a lot of like on the ground agitation for the rights he of did. like uh, POC and then the US and like yeah it was yeah, I mean, in again, the fifties, like, he was involved in the fifties, yeah. basically. So, so he was, yeah. yeah. So I wouldn't say he was totally boxed out of it, but like kind of the 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 crest of it in like the early mid to late sixties, um, especially when things got yeah. increasingly radical. It's like he was already that radical in the late fifties and early sixties. Yeah, 60s, and I think and so, that for that reason, like, uh, yeah, I think that maybe there was because of like the uh, the work that people did, like like the work that people like Paul Robeson did society as a whole was like more amenable to like the uh the goals of the civil rights movement like white society was you know like there Mm -hmm. were inroads being made like people like kennedy and johnson like were open to like considering like these changes but like in the climate that paul like 
uh, hopefully we'll read a little bit about like some of the you know uh, things uh, like Paul Robeson's concert like in Peak Skill and things mm-hmm. like that. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Wh- that like you know you can really see like the uh, work that he was doing in like a very hostile environment. And yeah, like in the same way that people like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali were received by many with just like absolute like disdain and like mm-hmm. you know. Uh, like hostility and like it just treated like how dare you like have this like presumptuousness to like uh mm-hmm. you know challenge like this power structure yeah like it was even like what paul ropes encountered was you know there were still people who supported those figures like they still had like uh you know allies as, as paul ropes did uh, as well but like the hostility they faced was really really something he did uh, that was yeah. very there were white mobs there they uncovered the the, the union the lo, one of the, some of the local unions came to provide security which is just i mean such a breath of fresh air from like let's get the hell's angels to like you know uh yeah. like you know do security for our bad acid concert mm-hmm. and like kill a bunch of black people instead uh that you know paul robeson was like really big about the marriage between the labor movement and like the workers movement and the civil rights movement and they were like it, it they he's saw you know really he was really kind of ahead of the curve and i think correct about that so they they had you know this line of like union uh you know a lot of like white union workers like protecting him and then they uncovered two snipers nests at the peak skill concert you know there's some crackers out there that basically wanted to take a shot at him during the concert but they like mm-hmm. they foiled oh, it so yeah, that was just the sure. level of like violence and and the police just stood back and pretty much did nothing. oh absolutely yeah talk yeah. about like the police let it happen like it uh-huh. was absolutely yeah and this was was like you know like lynching the lynching heyday like they and they were just outraged like yeah there will definitely go into that in in detail at some point uh mm-hmm. in this episode because but he yeah, was uh you know to cop yeah. a very cliche phrase like he was doing the work but he was yeah. he really was like mm-hmm. doing the work like he would go to these you know sites of like labor strikes and stuff and then sing for everybody and like give speeches and uh and people absolutely uh loved it i mean it was mm-hmm. uh it was fantastic yeah yeah and uh, you know for people like j edgar hoover it had to be stopped and right. oh yeah and i was gonna also mention that not only did he get like a virulent like right-wing you know racist whatever uh like virulently anti-communist kind of pushback but he also got a treatment that we've discussed a number of times before where um he definitely got ermed a lot by the more white liberal press um. for a lot of these <laughs> things you know they um. earned him they yeah, earned it when he uh. would say you know i believe with well, the first time is famous quote you know when i visited the soviet union i felt for the first time like a full human being uh and you know with the, there was no trace of color prejudice in the way i was treated that type of stuff was getting like good white liberal new york journalists to basically go um okay yeah. moving on you know and kind of like basically there that kind of line of it which probably was also like cia influenced was to say that like paul robeson got duped by the communists and the soviets mm-hmm. you know they like they tricked him they tricked his beautiful simple you know romantic mind into basically supporting this horrible thing and you really can't hold it against him too much because he does care but you know sorry paul like no paul the soviet union is not you know free of color you know like that kind of thing like just Mm -hmm. that kind of like picking at him and he was aware of that he was very aware of that and would call it out at times like people condescending to him I think that he also was aware of, like, the fact that he was, like, an American celebrity, and he was aware of, like, the role that he played 
in this like geopolitical uh like you know a uh, battle of optics like he wasn't mm-hmm. like being duped like of course no. like yeah the soviets like you know rolled out the red carpet uh, so to speak for him but like it wasn't like he was like oh you know like uh i'm unaware of this like the way that you know people treat yeah me. like he yeah. was making a statement like in saying those uh-huh. things like about something that he could affect which was a situation of like the racism like of racism in the united states and like mm-hmm. you know the like a miserated condition of uh you know uh black people uh so yes. it, yeah exactly uh, and you know he like he always kept his eye on the ball but he also as we'll see later in some of his statements about the soviet union when he was under extreme pressure to basically they were trying to twist his arm in every which way to just sign like an anti-communist statement that like communism's bad and but they took away his passport for about five years until the supreme court i think invalidated that but they basically were saying you can't get your passport back or leave the country until you sign like an anti-communist affidavit like declaring that like communism sucks and he was like no i'm not going to but what you see with him when he's making those statements is that he was very tactical and strategic Mm -hmm. about what he said and what he didn't say about the soviet union and it was anything but and at times like he would critique them in one particular instance like we'll get to uh later but like did it through art in like a veiled way that basically didn't wasn't like you know uh, american celebrity runs back to america and starts like holds a press conference and like they're doing bad things over there you know like like he didn't just like kind of uh freak out and like become an anti-communist like after learning some kind of like personally disturbing information uh but he still believed in like the overall kind of struggle and like the purpose of you know uh, the soviet union as a bulwark against the right wing of like the american empire and so he yeah. i think that that's all to say that like like people didn't have to coach or fill paul robeson's head with any of that that stuff i think at one of the senate hearings they ask him you know like when you were in russia did you attend any classes and he's like uh <laughs> no you know basically the implication being that like did they take you to like a communism class and like yeah. read you marx and he's like i hope you're aware i hope you're aware that marx and you know marx is not written in russian originally and like it was written uh you you know there's english translations i read that perfectly well in my own time thank you you know and just like that idea of like did they get into your head mr robeson you know like yeah. uh you know did they did they manchurian candidate you and he yeah like this is this is a guy like he spoke nobody knows exactly how many languages he spoke but the common number gets thrown around is 12 Mm, wow. He's a Impressive. graduate of yeah. Columbia Law School. I think either one of the was the only black person in his class to graduate from that. Uh, mm-hmm. He was like an all-American football player at Rutgers and then went on to play in the NFL. He became, I think, you know, the star of, I think, the longest running Broadway production at the time of Othello and became, you know, like you said, a a theater star and then moved into singing and was like the top singing artist and like all of these things. So the idea that he would just get kind of like hoodwinked or something and that you could just erm him and be like, sir, were you brainwashed by Stalin? Yeah. Is extremely annoying but predictable. It's actually interesting in terms of, you know, again, like Paul Robeson, like later in his life, had like serious mental health struggles that like were kind of by some speculated to have some association with like an MK type 
situation, mm-hmm. but yeah, like, uh, it, it is interesting. Like, there's one book about Paul Robeson that we came across, Paul Robeson, The Cold War Performance Complex, uh, Race, mm-hmm. Madness, Activism, uh, yeah. by Tony Perucci, which is, like, a very, uh, you know, performance studies book, but uh, it's interesting, you know, in its subtitle, pointing out the, the element of madness. It really makes a strong, uh, it takes a strong emphasis on uh, the aspect of, of psychoanalysis and the sort of ascendancy of psychoanalysis during uh, Paul Robeson's time and the, the mm-hmm. way that this was uh, used to uh, diminish what he was saying and the, the, yeah, the, the instrumentalization of sort of psychoanalytic rhetoric to say like, oh, you know, you're so, there's something wrong with you, like you're crazy, like or you're sort of expressing some kind yeah. of, you know, it's almost thing. it's like, almost a direct prede- yeah. yeah, it's almost a direct predecessor to how people treated Kanye after 2016. Yeah, uh, like, it is similar. Somebody yeah, needs to lock him up and get mention. him back on his meds. That's someone else, you know, not to demean Paul Robeson through like comparison to, to modern figures. For sure. Like, as you, as you <laughs> yes. out, but that is, that's someone else who, who came to mind in, in reading some of this stuff as, yeah, a figure who feels kind of a distance. But it is like, you know, again, like the contrast comes through because like Kanye's uh, political uh, stance is like, drag energy and like you know like i love trump you know like stuff like Mm -hmm. that which is like Mm -hmm. you can tell there's something like you know under the surface like going on or like you know paul robeson probably wouldn't be like you know black people were slaves because they were lazy or like you know what they did like you know or like something you know it's just like it kind of shows how things have changed and like that forces that noticed uh paul robeson have marshaled themselves to, uh, you know, pr- prevent the another Paul Robeson from from coming along. Uh, yeah, the same, yeah, like, yeah. The same discourse of like Kanye, go on your meds. It's so like naturalized now is like a direct mm-hmm. descendant of this, and like the the fact that it's so naturalized like kind of speaks to why, you know, uh, we have sort of uh, this this incohate uh, situation a lot of the time uh, in terms of the the elements don't quite. Uh, come together uh, and well I mean it's true across the board of uh, of politics in the country at this point you know uh, there isn't like yeah. a well organized left or anything so it makes no sense. no it, uh, it is yeah. you, you do see even the compare like the downward trajectory of basically a, a sort of celebrity being able to come out with like a very well thought out and compelling like political philosophy that they can speak off the cover yeah. of like like Robeson I mean, you know he's like he's this is a guy who has like done uh, like a lot of reading and a lot of like real what he's steeped in like theory and praxis and like the way he speaks about it is like so like naturally authoritative and fascinating to listen to and like coherent i mean like he he presents a pretty compelling case for like why he believes what he believes that like kanye is like entertaining but like it's just a it's a testament maybe to how like politics in like uh even though it's pervaded like the pop culture entertainment complex it is Mm. uh usually either like completely boilerplate or it is incoherent and some like not well thought out i mean in reading about this uh you know and going back to this time in in our readings you really in a certain respect there's nothing new under the sun because Mm -hmm. like the whole like reaction to like the the idea of communism for instance like and the Mm -hmm. sort of like racial element to it like you can really see how like it's still present in in certain ways like uh with the sort of you know like the eye rolling uh and the sort of like oh you know you're you're causing like uh actually you know i kind of think uh this you know we mentioned the the peak skill riot so it might be good to read like this 
one portion of the chapter from uh, Perucci's book on mm-hmm. uh, ropes and uh, that talks about it. Uh, maybe we can uh, go deeper uh, into it uh, later. But yeah, I'll read the the prelude to it, and I'll, I'll when I get to the point that's uh, especially relevant. So. Um, okay. So, with a thousand uh, state and uh, county police on hand, the many New York City blacks and Jews who filled school buses for a September 4th concert brought themselves, uh, t- thought themselves to be safe. Many even brought their children and a picnic lunch. In Peekskill, however, residents planned once again to disrupt the concert. Stephen Sesgo, who had rented his pasture uh, to People's Artists for the second concert, received ongoing telephone uh, threats. This is like in mm-hmm. 1949, like by, yeah. by the way. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. In addition to numerous attempts of arson to his home with Molotov cocktails, a volley of 22 rifle bullets was fired into the front wall of his house. Veterans groups planned another parade to protest Robeson's appearance, and the buses arrived at the concert area. Uh, as they arrived, the plaintive sounds of the American Legion's fife and drums corps could be heard mixed in with uh, N-words and Jews. They belong together. The ropes wow. and concerts at Peekskill were a vivid enactment of the ways in which the violence of anti-communism and racism functioned to produce a restrictive American identity. However, the event performed violence also occasioned its resistance. Uh, the event of performed violence. Uh, as the police enabled mobs co- contended, blacks and Jews did come together in Peekskill. Along with members of left-wing unions, soon to be expelled from the CIO for their radical stances and communist members, the multiple audiences of Robeson's concert, the blacks, Jews, and radicals attending the concert, and the interracial union members who created human shields directly around Robeson and other uh, and another around uh, the entire concert ground, enacted the radical stance of collective action in the face of violence. This radical action illustrates the ways in which the Cold War performance complex produces ruptures, fissures in the network of power this chapter this is like a theoretical concept you know that this Mm -hmm. guy has in this book but anyway uh, the chapter describes the ways in which the performance complex conjoins activist traditions over time and across space in the days following the second concert peaceful residents claimed that once again they had been the victims of communist provocation however the american civil liberties union clarified how peaceful used the word provocation what Peekskill means by, quote, provocation is the insistence that Robeson and his followers, uh, is the insistence by Robeson and his followers of their right to hold a private concert on private grounds in order to raise money for their unpopular political purposes. By, quote, provocation, the apologists for the Peekskill riots actually mean the exercise of the constitutional right of free speech and free assembly. Yet, many Americans saw communist speech and assembly as just such a provocation. Within the Cold War performance complex, communist provocation demanded spectacular vengeance. In the Cold War era cartoon, Make Mine Freedom, this is something that really reminded me, uh, I think that resonates a lot today. Uh, mm-hmm. So he's using an example of this cartoon, Make Mine Freedom. So the communist is portrayed as a snake oil salesman, quote-unquote, Mr. Utopia, who tries mm-hmm. to con Americans into buying his, f- quote, foreign bottles of, quote, isms. Uh, but you know, I can. This wow. is very similar to like a lot of rhetoric I think you you hear uh, going around today. Uh, mm-hmm. But the voiceover narrator warns us that when anyone teaches disunity, tries to pit one of us against the other through class warfare, race hatred, or religious intolerance, you know that person seeks to rob us of our freedom and destroy our very lives, and we know what to do about it. The wow. 100% American mob uh, turns menacingly towards the communist con man with bottles and umbrellas held threateningly aloft as the communist retreats his voice lifts into profound terror now gentlemen don't throw those bottles don't throw those bottles no no with looney tunes style music the raging mob attacks the communist running him out of town as his screams fade into a patriotic fife and drum 
In Make Mine Freedom, mob violence has become an American value. As wow. Pete Seeger remembers, Peekskill likes to share these values. The people in Peekskill were calling out to the rest of America, whenever you find a commie around, do something about it. Don't wait for the long process of the law. Do it right away, because our country is in danger. Kill Oof. a commie for mommy. Uh, yeah, kill a commie uh, for rooms. mommy. Uh, uh, rock out in your garage. Yeah. Do the Blitzkrieg bop. Yeah. Yes. That, um, so, I, yes, I also very, The just, whole thing just of, like, the, disunity, like, they're tearing uh-huh. us apart, like, with their well, critical race theory or whatever, their isms, you know, like, well, uh, it's That like, actually yeah. directly parallels um, that kind of line of uh, argument. I just watched uh, that new Fred Hampton movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. That is mm-hmm. exactly the argument that the FBI agent who recruits to, like, the SNP who ends up killing Fred Hampton basically mm-hmm. says to him like he even it's very I think it's actually I know a lot of people you know were saying oh this movie Hollywood's gonna fucking do some bullshit and it's gonna suck mm-hmm. I think it's actually anyways he basically says like you know I was I was down in Mississippi in 62 like hunting down the clan so like you know I'm I'm woke bro like you know the white the white FBI agent is saying this and he says but then he he pivots to say you know the clan and the Panthers are just two sides of the same coin. All they want to do is divide us and like increase yeah. violence and blah blah blah. And like they're the same. Don't let Hampton fool you. You know that's like all they want is chaos and violence and like they just want to go do Antifa stuff and like be evil. And they're no different from like Boogaloo boys who like storm the Capitol. Really, they're all bad. And that I guess is kind of the both the overwhelming mentality of like the national security state at that time and the like mainstream white press. Uh, is that you know but like people like Robeson and the KKK were kind of just like two sides of the same coin you know but also mm-hmm. there's like an implicit bias towards like downplaying the ferocity of the patriots with their fife and drums and shit like yeah. you know yelling epithets and like building snipers nests and like a bunch of left wing like people coming together to like have a concert <laughs> you know um, yeah. and there's actually just something to piggyback off that in the same book I think it's in the same section it talks about the the, the kind of erming like psychoanalytic framework from peak skill mm-hmm. um yeah. under peak skill and communist masochism so i guess this was a meme at the time and you really catch like the gaslighting vibes here uh he wrote the national and local mainstream white press spoke with one voice about the peak skill riot quote there was of course no attempt to lynch paul robeson local veterans groups were victims of communist quote calculated incitement displaying righteous if misguided indign- indignation Ultimately, the veterans were victims of the communist psychological malady, quote, for the communists have long been addicted to what might be called political masochism. While over 4,000 jammed the Golden Gate Ballroom in Harlem to protest the riot and to demand an investigation, the San Francisco Chronicle retorted that officials should, quote, not walk into Robeson's trap by allowing any inquiry, quote, but it doesn't really take an investigation to discover who really touched off the riot. It only takes a little reflection as to who stood to benefit fit the most from such a riot, a little thought to whose bag of tricks this sort of operation generally comes out of. Robeson's appearance was an invitation to trouble, and if it wasn't deliberate on his part, it was certainly deliberate on the part of his communist friends. It was, furthermore, a smart operation on the part of the communists and sympathizers who were using Robeson, with his complete acquiescence, as a tool. 
Robe and so it goes on like Robeson, it is clear, was the inciter of the riot. His mere appearance produced the violence it alleged to protest. The Chronicle yeah. could then make its diagnosis. Robeson was not a fool, but rather, the paper explained, a fanatic. Fanaticism was a common way to dismiss and, con- and contain communism. Um, as Ellen Schrecker explains, this term was strategically deployed to mark communism's deviance since, quote, the depiction of communists as fanatics distanced them from ordinary people. Fanaticism implied a rationality and even madness, taking communism out of the political realm and into a world of abnormal psychology where the specific causes and ideas embraced by its members were easy to ignore, especially among moderates and liberals, the notion that communism was some kind of psychological disorder came to be quite common. So, hmm, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and, like, in this respect, you can definitely see how, like, there's nothing new under the sun because... The same thing, like, happens now where, like, oh, you know, uh, even the people at Peekskill, like, in 1949, like, in the, like, the apogee of, like, lynch mania and things like that, they would say, like, oh, you know, we don't have a problem with Jews, we don't have a problem with black people, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, we have plenty of black people here, and there's even Jews here, it's Mm because they're communists, you know, and it's the same thing now, where it's like, well, you know, it's all a communist plot to, like, weaken our racial stock or whatever, like, uh, you know, or it's like, well, you know, they're promoting disunity, they're, like, trying to tear down uh, America, you know, like, like, BLM is being bankrolled by Soros, and, like, they don't know what they're doing, you know, it's not about uh, that, it's about, like yeah the you know the, exactly they're fools uh they're being you know used in this way like and yeah useful uh, idiots uh is a yeah, term that we like, they love and, to throw around and therefore like it's okay like yeah the like the, the the teleology of this or the ultimate result is that like our society will like collapse and we'll have no more like you know american identity or whatever uh-huh. uh so therefore like you know what appears to be peaceful it's like legitimate to like react with extreme like violence extreme uh, prejudice you know, like basically yeah yeah there isn't a balance because yeah so even though like you know obviously this is like the absolute like you know the dark nadir of like uh you know racism and lynching in the american south you know you can still definitely see the resonances of a lot of this stuff uh, in the way that like politics are imagined now I met my brother the other day I gave him my right hand And just as soon as ever my back was turned He scandalized my name Now do you call that a brother? No, no You call that a brother? No, no Call that a brother? No, no sister the other day I gave her my right hand and just as soon as ever my back was turned she too scandalized my name now do you call that a sister no no you call that a sister no no call that a sister no no the other day I gave him my right hand and 
just as soon as ever my back was turned into scandalize my name now do you call that religion no no you call that religion no no you call that religion no no Have you ever heard of the film I Was a Communist for the FBI from 1951? Uh, no, I have not. Might be I a fun propaganda it. thing to check out one day uh, because it's it's like based on a true story um, about, you know, an FBI informant who like infiltrated the Communist Party or whatever. In the film, which the author here uh, quotes, like there's a scene where there's like a big there's a lecture at Freedom Hall and there's a German accented communist named Eisner who is like talking to a, a crowd of like, you know, black workers. And I guess in the movie, he says to bring about the victory of communism in america we must incite riots discontent open warfare among the people that is the purpose of tonight's meeting in voiceover uh Svetic, the informant explains the vulnerability of the black mind to the savvy of white communist fanaticism and the movie says yes as gerhard eisner said pittsburgh was too quiet too peaceful so they cooked up a hell brew of hate from a recipe written in the kremlin it was the same old line they'd used for years on all racial minorities to create unrest and confusion like other communists traitors blandon the communist lecturer had been trained in moscow there are more ways than one to sabotage the safety of a country the one he used was as dangerous as blowing up defense plants it was the old rule of divide and conquer literally oh nothing new the on hegelian dialectic yeah, well, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> right. yeah uh, uh you yeah. know i guess the end and the african-american crowd performs its quote mental inability to resist the sway of communist fanaticism by wildly applauding the communist speaker and shouting down the lone dissenter but communist advocacy of civil rights in the film is purely a cynical ploy to get one of that crowd to get into a fight with a white man and dot 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 kill him <laughs> and uh in fact right. in the movie communists are shown to be even more racist than the FBI agent among them. Upon his return giving his riot inciting lecture, Blandon declares, quote, those N-words ate it up, didn't they? So that was the, I guess, the vibe in Hollywood in 1951 during the Red Scare. And I mean, but like, how similar does that sound both to like the things right-wing people would say and also to like Russiagate liberals of, yeah. uh, you know, cooked up a, like I could see what's her name, like Sarah Kenzior or something like like tweeting, like they cooked up a hellbrew of hate from a recipe written in the Kremlin. Oh yeah, know? for sure. Yeah. Like, uh, <laughs> like it's not just like, of course, right-wing people are like the heaviest handed with it, but it yeah. absolutely like like comes from liberals i feel like recently maybe since george floyd there's been a little bit of like a quieter or the liberal side of that has been cowed but maybe mm-hmm. now that uh biden is in office you know because of the way these things work where it's completely superficial and cynical like yeah. we'll start to see the liberal brand of it like emerge more forcefully again where it's like this is all about like you know or the sort of concern trolling of like well you know uh uh-huh. yeah yeah, uh, yeah exactly like, by like I remember, like, yeah, the concern like about, Bernie like, Russia, in 2016. You know, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Or, you like, know, like Russia Bernie bros like were basically useful yeah. idiot. Um, yeah, exactly. Com- com- yes, uh, disinformation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jill Stein as well. Uh, Deeply yeah. misguided, dangerous anti vaxxer. Had dinner with Putin once. Uh, you know, yeah. total mm-hmm. asset. 
Yeah. Yeah. And uh, right. so, you know, that so that it shows you how deep that DNA of like the anti-communist like state of mind permeates like both wings of American politics and like political discourse and like what the way the media is able to dismiss and demean and basically like slander, you know, people that are saying yeah. something that's like out of line that is, this is goes actually, against the orthodoxy. And- this is actually an amazing example from uh, that same book that uh, yeah I wanted to read earlier. Uh, I think now might be might be a good time. So this is a, a, a you know a, a very great anecdote um, about uh, his meeting with President Truman, uh, Robeson being President Truman. So mm-hmm. uh, Panucci uh, says uh, Perucci, in the years leading up to the Peekskill riots, Robeson led a delegation to meet with President Harry Truman to demand his advocacy for federal anti-lynching legislation. The Robeson-Truman meeting garnered national attention due not only to Robeson's celebrity, but also due to the combative turn the meeting took. Robeson and other activists demanded action in the face of the resurgence of lynch terror, which had been met with not a single arrest, indictment, or conviction of any participant in any of the lynchings. The Chicago Defender reported that when Harper Sibley, president of the United Council of Church Women, compared fascism against Jews in Germany to fascism in America against Negroes, the president showed impatience and a flare of temper. Truman continued to assert the primary significance of, quote, patience as a long-term political strategy over immediate action. Robeson Hmm. finally warned Truman that if the federal government refused to act to curb lynching, Negroes would. Truman responded by shaking his fist, stating that this sounded like a threat. Indeed, this notion of the true danger of racism dominated American political cultural discourse throughout the post-war years. Racism was not thought to threaten democracy by the violence and discrimination that constituted it. Rather, racism's true threat was seen as the potential violence against whites that it might incur from African Americans, as well as the propaganda value such conflicts would have for the Soviet Union. (laughs) Meanwhile, the consequences of racism for African Americans were continually elided. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I could I completely imagine like President right. Biden yeah. like saying that today to somebody who yeah, went like, listen, like, fat, you know, that sounds yeah, like a threat. Exactly. Like, you know, yeah. Uh, All right, here's the deal. Right. Get out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Get out of my office. Like, yeah. Now, listen, Jack, like, I've done more yeah. for, you know, yeah. Like, it's like, it's yeah. like he starts having corn pop flashbacks and like reaches yeah, for a chain under his desk and like wraps yeah, it around his hand and the aides escort them out. Yeah, definitely. I can see it happening. Yeah. So, and I think that, that I, yeah. the, that's still very true that like the real danger is like, well, you know, what could happen, you know, to white people if this race, you know, if, uh, if black people, if this racism gets so extreme that black people get mad, you know, what could happen to, you know, uh, Coca-Cola or whatever, or uh, Bank of America if like, you know, we don't make a perfunctory uh sign of like you know, yeah uh, and, and it and it's like a it, it's like uh it shows you again to like the aspects of performativity that um permeate all of this that uh truman was more much more concerned with the appearance of the united states not being racist than he was about the actual like realities of racist violence yeah. in the united states mm-hmm. he was just uh, concerned about that the, like the soviets wouldn't be able to point to something that was like an actual result of our you know basically apartheid society and like mm-hmm. the violence that like springs from that and like get you know basically like we would rightfully look bad and they would point it out and that's priority number one is yeah. to basically look like you're doing something. Uh, but at the same time, you know, when you say, like, this will never be, you know, erupt uh, into something worse if you don't do anything about it, he immediately thinks of, like, why are you threatening me? Yeah. And Paul <laughs> it's Robeson, like, there's a disconnect like, was, there. 
part of the reason why Paul Robeson was such like a lightning rod, I think, is because like he combined in one person like the fear of like the agitation for civil rights by African Americans and mm-hmm. the fear of communists. Yes. Uh, you know, like the basically created like in you know he embodied the conflation of those two things like you know one feeds into the other and yeah so I while think that, being one of america's like most beloved celebrities yeah is um, like yeah, like a, that had to be a little terrifying for you yeah know, and it's very Jay interesting Edgar too like if you think about the nature i mean like i think that you mentioned old man river like which is probably like maybe his most famous song like i think that his like nickname for a while was like old man river robeson or whatever you know like the people yeah, old man that. river yeah yeah which is you know yeah of course and the, the song old man river itself like in its lyrics like paul robeson actually refused to sing like the lyrics as they were written like he had like kind of a beef with the guy who wrote them uh ha- the famous hammerstein of yeah. hammerstein he was like robeson could write his own song and stop changing my lyrics like he has to say the n-word and like you know be like ah stupid like you know in the lyrics yeah he had the, yeah. he had some lyrics that i guess uh or some songs that was like had the n-word yeah like that, um know. yeah i mean old man river is yeah, you know what? There's actually another interesting part about like uh, this song from the same book. Like, um, so and it kind of like I think the point I'm trying to make is how it's very interesting how like uh, Paul Robeson sort of roles like his role in the that movie Showboat, which itself is like a very that showboat is like a very like bizarre like like stereotypical you know at the time it was like groundbreaking uh, for being at the time like and by the the time i mean like 1929 i think was when it first came out 36 it was 36 there wasn't an earlier version of that or uh well the movie the movie was in 36 the the musical i think yeah he wasn't he in the musical yeah no he was in the musical in the late 20s and then in the movie in 36 he didn't want to do it but his wife told him he should just go in there and offer like a ridiculous sum of money like like basically Mm -hmm. demanded a ridiculous sum of money they would say no to and then they said yes so then he was like all right i'll do it yeah but uh but yeah this movie is basically about like miscegenation and like uh you know the plot line is kind of like this melodramatic like uh saccharine kind of uh things like uh sort of creating sympathy for people of color at least for the sort of the uh i guess the stereotype is like the tragic octoroon like you Mm -hmm. uh it's like sort of a figure at the time especially like uh the sort of uh attractive like basically white woman who like uh finds out that she has like a tiny little like fraction of black blood and therefore like this this poor white woman has to like suffer the plight of like you know being treated as black and this was like you know one of the main ways that white people were able to like sympathize with uh black people uh by seeing like oh you know like wow these rules really are unfair because like a poor white you know uh yeah beautiful it's very much like that you know that book that i think uh i think i actually had to read in high school but it's probably like highly canceled today which is i think it was called black like me where oh, a guy yeah, like basically yeah, yeah, painted guy like blackface. dressed up in yeah, blackface exactly. in New Orleans yeah. for like a year and was mm-hmm. like wow like I did not realize that like the racism is bad like damn you know uh yeah kind of a controversial tactic today but I guess that's kind of what maybe it took back then for people to even 
be able to yeah. imagine. Yeah, I mean, it was kind uh, of like Uncle Tom's Cabin. Like, you know, uh, Harriet Breacher still, like, didn't know any, like, had never met a slave or, like, had never talked to a black person or something, you know? And, yeah. like, the old Uncle also... Tom's Cabin is full of, like, racist stereotypes, but, yeah. like, it really did a lot to help, like, white people, like, see, like, oh, this is, like, wrong, you know? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, which, it's, it's like, very much you know, like, there's even modern really movies today, like, and, like, whatever, uh, like, you know, you know yeah. like, the mo- oh, course, movies like yeah. the uh, movies like the help you know yeah like, the help the help is yeah. a great example yeah for yeah. sure um uh, or yeah. you know being an or, inner city like school teacher or something who inspires these kids and you know like uh yeah, all those I didn't kind see of like the movie movies green book but i i heard similar things about it yeah but but, but he yeah, felt I very mean, constricted by these roles it should be said like he yeah, he always he had a, role a and it was not like an active role like the main character of showboat is the tragic octoroon really who is like you know uh this white woman who's cursed kind of by this drop of black blood that destroys her life because even and even all the white people around her are like oh you know we know it's not fair but like we have to enforce the laws no one would ever think that about like paul robinson's character who is like joe the black stevedore who like sits yeah. there and like muses about old man river uh yeah. and like accepts his plight you know uh but it's interesting how like he was someone who embodied those roles and those characters for like the imagination of white audiences and then you know uh the way you know the way he was able to use that as like a weapon like a political weapon is like super uh interesting and he he did uh i think his uh his son in the like 1999 pbs documentary here i stand which is really good you can find it on youtube i think he did say at a point that like uh you know paul the paul robeson would always tell him that art is a weapon and that was yeah. how he approached basically every career that he like catapulted to the top of in his life. He taught as basically like a like a a field of struggle, basically, that it wasn't just about kind of like being good at the thing. But in many cases, he was like the fir- one of the first black people to be able to do a thing. And it was all about like, what could I do to sort of like advance the cause of my people by becoming a football star. Like what could I do by becoming like, you know, going to Columbia and becoming a lawyer to like, you know, help basically. And, and for a while it does say in the documentary that back in the twenties when he really was kind of a, a you know, a, definitely a celebrity um, among African-Americans uh, already for, and, you know, was kind of a sports star. Um, he believed in kind of what is, I think, still very dominant. To, I would say almost like monopolizes the ideas uh, today in terms of advancement of like individuals, basically, if they if enough individual African-Americans distinguish themselves in their various fields, that it will like basically disprove racism. It'll discredit the sort of white supremacist ideas that permeate everything in our society. And then like, you know, basically uh, white America will have to like yield and like basically start to integrate. But of course, over his, you know, once he, he still wasn't super, super like politically plugged in uh, in the early 1920s as he got more like politically educated, uh, he started to greatly resent that kind of uh, framing that if you just like basically, I mean, even to the point where when he's in front of the House of Un-American Activities Committee in the 50s, when they yell at him about like, but you were a football star, like you've been very successful, yeah. like nobody stood in your way. And he really like, like claps back against that very hard. It's like, I deeply 
I deeply like resent and like disagree with the idea that like a few exceptional Negroes, you know, becoming uh, at the top of their industry uh, means that like it automatically like a rising tide lifts all boats for everybody um, or everybody yeah. else like rides into my coattails. He realized that it was much more structural and class based and like the problems yeah. ran way deeper. So he never and right. now today it's kind of like, well, like, bro, look at Jay-Z. Like he's a businessman. Well, no, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> you know great, it's like there's also a great like there's nothing new under the sun moment because like, yeah, like, you know, people are still saying stuff, but it's amazing that like even back then, like those HUAC members would be like screaming at him that there's no racism in America. In like, I'm sorry to play football at Lehigh. There was no color prejudice against you then. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like what? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, like it's psychotic. It, it really, uh, yeah, really insane. Um, but but the, but yeah, the level, I, mean, I assume some of the people, I, I don't know the exact composition of the HUAC committees, but I assume some of them were like not, they weren't all like the most far right, like hardcore. There must have been some people that fancied themselves like responsible liberals who maybe, you know, cared about the Negro, uh, you know, uh, situation or whatever, but would still, I think, would be pretty much like they probably mostly agreed with that like psycho who's like screaming about the Lehigh game he saw yeah. Paul Robeson like, play you know, in. If, <laughs> like, if people look up his, you know, uh, thing on, on YouTube, like they'll find kind of the James Earl Jones like reenactment where like it's very much like kind of like, uh, you know, courtroom, like, you know, it's kind of, I think it might be done up a little bit, uh, you know, uh, with might the intensity yeah. of the people screaming. Yeah. But I do. You know, uh, like yeah. They, well, they well we could talk about that reality, but it yeah, might've like, been, uh, I, I, I have to yeah. say, I thought for the last several years, you told me that today that it was James Earl Jones and that yeah. kind of, uh, blew my mind a little bit because I listened mm-hmm. to that, you know, the last couple of years and I consider it kind of one of the most like, I considered it, I, I think I even told the, you know, told this to people, like, this is one of the greatest performances, like, in American history, even though it's, you know, it's Paul Robeson testifying to this committee in a very hostile back and forth, but just, like, his level of, and I didn't question for a second, partially, I guess, because James Earl Jones's impression is so accurate that you almost mm-hmm. can't tell, but... Like also, if you look at other things of Paul Robeson talking or being interviewed or testifying, like that is how he he is just so performative by nature. And yeah. as a public figure, like like the the event itself was so theatrical that I didn't even question listening to this recording online that was actually like James Earl Jones doing a one man play. Um, and I think you did say that like, there are a few things that were kind of changed or inserted. Most of it is pretty accurate. They have the transcript, but I guess no audio recording. I just want to say something that popped into my head. Yeah. I believe the version that I had found and that I had like shared with you was from was actually posted by just want to double check here actually oh okay this link is a little different oh as interpreted by okay so as interpreted by james Earl jones this link said does mention at the bottom that this is like a recreation but the original version that i found the reason i was misled is because it didn't label it as like james Earl jones doing it but it was posted by jacobin and I just thought, not to get a little too paranoid, but I thought it was interesting because one of the things that is, like, downplayed 
in this like 11 minute clip that from the real transcript was uh paul robeson's much more robust defense of stalin and the gulags than than basically he gives uh he does defend kind of stalin and like deflects the questions when they attack him in the in the james Earl jones thing but just thought kind of interesting that like jackman would kind of try to like maybe psyop us into thinking that you know that was all paul robeson said about the soviet union but he actually like went further maybe into like like, ooh, tanky up. territory yeah. a little bit. Um, and, like, the, yeah. the real transcript, I think, is much longer in general. Um, but, yeah, what he does sort of say, like, uh, you know, they make this whole point because Paul Robeson is sort of indicting the United States for its complicity and slavery and all these things. Uh, and so they're like, well, what about the slave camps in the Soviet Union? And, uh, you know, in the recording, he'll, he just kind of repeats his point that, like, there's nothing comparable to like the you know the way that the united states has been built on slavery you know kind of uh, artfully deflecting it in the the actual uh transcript he says something uh which is like uh you know i don't like basically like you know he makes uh uh the point that you know he'll take that up with the russian people like that's their problem like he's not russian he's american he doesn't have the ability to affect that but as he (laughs) understands it the people in those camps are fascists uh you know like uh so like you know and they would kill like a bunch of jews and and black people if they had the chance so yeah uh, that's what he he understands it you know so uh necessary it was necessary yeah 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 yeah. Um, which you know that that, i think that's evident both that like maybe in this one man play james Earl jones did that was a part they wanted to tell down a little bit and uh that jacobin is trying to sigh up us all into thinking that you know paul robeson only gave like a little bit of a softer defense of the soviets and they did because they're like trots or the sock dem opportunists um but anyways um in russia i felt for the first time like a full human being no color prejudice like in mississippi no color prejudice like in washington it was the first time I felt like a human being, when I did not feel the pressure of color as I feel it in this committee today. Why do you not stay in Russia? Because my father was a slave, and my people died to build this country. And I'm going to stay here and have a part of it just like you, and no fascist-minded people will drive me from it. Is that clear? You are here because you are promoting the communist cause. I am here because I am opposing the neo-fascist cause, which I see arising in these committees. Jefferson could be sitting here, and Frederick Douglass could be sitting here. Eugene Debs could be sitting here. Now, what prejudice are you talking about? You were graduated from Rutgers. You were graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. I remember seeing you play football at Lehigh. There was no prejudice against you. Just a moment. This is something I challenge very deeply that the success of a few Negroes can make up for $700 a year for thousands of Negro families in the South. My father was a slave, and I have cousins who are sharecroppers. I do not see success in terms of myself. I have sacrificed hundreds of thousands of dollars for what I believe in. While you were in Moscow, Mr. Robeson, did you make a speech lauding Stalin? I can't remember. Have you recently changed your mind about Stalin? What Stalin, gentlemen, is a question for the Soviet Union, and I won't argue with a representative of the people who, in building America, wasted the lives of my people. 
you are responsible, you and your forebears, for 60 to 100 million black people dying in the slave ships and on the plantations. Don't you ask me about anybody. I'm please. sure you wouldn't want to discuss with us the slave labor camps in the Nothing Soviet Union. Nothing could more on slavery than this society, I assure you. I would invite your attention to the Daily Worker of June 29, 1949, with reference to a get-together with you and Ben Davis, formerly communist councilman in New York. Do you know Ben One Davis? One of my dearest friends. He is as patriotic and American as can be. And you, gentlemen, are the non-patriots. Just a minute. You are the un-Americans. The hearing is now adjourned. I think it should be. I've endured all of this that I can. Can I read my statement? No! The meeting is adjourned! It should be. Before we get into like a more like linear bio of Paul Robeson, I thought that uh, these two parts from Perucci's book like uh, stood out to me. Um, mm-hmm. There's one uh, section uh, we won't read the whole thing, but uh, it's called uh, the Black Paranoid Poetics and the Cold War Crisis of Sanity. It's uh, you know this whole book is like very like theory brain, so uh, you know yeah. uh, just like take it as you will. But uh, uh-huh. anyway, so he writes. Uh, <laughs> Perpetual crisis limits what kinds of performances are permissible, formally contributing to the ideology of scarcity. However, crisis is also a productive force, as Randy Martin points out, in that performance can be said to occur through crisis as well as from crisis. Just as Huack needed Robeson to, quote, act like a communist so that he could serve as an object of repudiation for other blacks, his actual occupation of that position gave rise to a critique of U.S. post-war foreign policy, civil rights, and economic practices, and thus threatened to reveal that Huack and other anti-communist forces were operating as a means to undo New Deal programs. These anti-communist moves were enacted not out of a free market ideology, but rather were meant to facilitate government-corporate partnerships to expand global capitalism. Robeson's performance, rather than ritually interpolating him as an obedient citizen, a little all who's there reference there, mm-hmm. uh, reclaimed the space of performance as a site to demand the redress of the violence of slavery, racism, and capitalism, or at least inhibit their perpetuation. Uh, this part goes a little bit into sort of like the idea of critical paranoia, uh, which I like, and sort of the the uh, pathologization of, of this. Uh, mm-hmm. The mode of radical black performance is repeatedly diagnosed as mentally ill and subject to confinement. A disproportionate percentage of patients who are involuntarily committed to state-run institutions in the U.S. are black. Black patients were more frequently subjected to sedative medicine and held in greater numbers for indefinite confinement without juridical review. Those who have narrated links between such practices with the drive to, quote, sterilize mental defectives who raised awareness about the CIA's alleged involvement with crack dealing in Los Angeles and the assassination of Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba, or who called attention to the links between corporate interests in Africa and U.S. foreign policy, have repeatedly been labeled as paranoid. Uh, This is something we've kind of talked about a little bit before. Quote, uh, black paranoia has been used to discount assertions of racist practices in the U.S. government. As Patricia Turner has argued in her study of rumor and folklore in African-American culture, the vast accounting of state-sponsored and state-sanctioned violence against blacks means that such thinking is not paranoid, but is rather entirely reasonable and in perfect keeping with traditional anti-black hostility one's find in many branches of government. However, if we consider paranoia less as a clinical disorder than as a social practice where, quote, one's interpretations seem to be unfounded and or abnormal to an interpretive community, unquote, then the paranoia can be seen to occupy a position of radical critique. It is in this position that Joseph Heller's paranoid bomber occupies in Catch-22. He believes that everyone is trying to kill him because they actually are. As a position of radical critique, creative and critical paranoia can serve as an effective, as an effective form of resistance to social control. The post-war narrative of paranoia conspiracy 
according to Timothy Melly, is driven by a sense that knowledge and power are inextricably linked and that to be paranoid may only be to reject the normalizing ideology of the powerful. If we see critical paranoia as a social practice that operates as a form of political resistance rather than as a clinical diagnosis, then we need not, as Patricia Turner does, dispense with the term. Instead, we can adopt critical paranoia as a political strategy of making visible the performance complex, the connectedness of state-sponsored and state-sanctioned oppression uh, manifested by the violence of physical force or the violence of economic domination and exploitation. Uh, so, wow. yeah. Hell goes, yeah. Uh, uh, Full-throated yes. endorsement of critical paranoia. Yeah, yep. definitely. And it's it, what we've yeah, been saying uh, this whole time. Yes, it's what we've been saying this whole time. Yeah, definitely true. But yeah, he goes on to talk about Robeson's embodiment of this through his uh, voice and, and his uh, performance. One great thing that, you know, he was accused of kind of making up was, like, the influence of African traditions on like uh black music um Mm -hmm. uh, which is you know they were saying like oh you know his association of these different like uh you know his sort of random association of these different cultures and to do with each other uh you know that shows like uh you know that he's he's moving towards uh, a mental breakdown or something this is the part um For Robeson, the burning voice of revolt was characterized by a radical linking that also characterized critical paranoia, which was, in fact, a theory for a total system that underlies all folk expression. During his confinement, Robeson began to research to develop a musicological paradigm that would, according to Tim Chopin's recounting of a speech Robeson gave at Swarthmore College, illumine how peace has a cultural basis. In his writings and speeches on music, Robeson argued that there is a world body, a universal body of folk music based upon a universal pentatonic five-tone scale. A little bit of a... Uh, oh, yeah. Here. yeah. Yeah, I did uh, point that out right. in the notes that, like, the yeah. pentatonic scale is Robeson's, uh, basically his Verity tuning, but actually, there's a lot to it, actually, and it's yeah. really fascinating. Like, he was but, a real uh, music theory nerd, uh, basically, yeah. throughout his oh, life. Oh, I mean, he really was an cool amazing, uh, like, you know, musical performer and artist, so... So, you mm-hmm. know, uh, perhaps it a bit more credits than, than LaRouche. Uh, no, I mean, absolutely. It's not. It's, LaRouche's, uh, yeah, uh, musical accomplishments too much. But uh, yeah. yeah, not, yeah. Uh, but in uh, terms of like the of depth of his passion for yeah. it, it's like just on that level of like he really dove into trying to find uh, like Chomsky, but for real, like almost trying to find like the universal source of like all folk music around the world, like the certain building blocks, like the pentatonic scale, which you can achieve mm-hmm. by basically he explains in his book, Here I Stand, very uh very straightforwardly that if you just go on a piano and you only play on the black keys that's the pentatonic scale and if you actually start playing around with that like so many folk melodies do sound like that across very different culture i don't know it's fascinating anyways yeah this is just a yeah interesting uh robeson had initially looked at the pentatonicism as a way to refute suggestions that african-american musical traditions were imitations of european musical forms afro-american music with its emphasis on the polyphonic and contrapuntal was based on the pentatonic scale which he argued in 1956 had a quote african heritage but robeson extended his claim to argue for a universal tonality that linked folk cultures a pentatonic harmony united china africa Africa, Indonesia, and up until 1500, Europe. 
Robeson biographer Martin Doberman dismisses Robeson's findings by saying that pentatonic universalism as, quote, a discovery is as indisputable as it is unoriginal. Moreover, Dobson reads Robeson's, quote, obsessive investment with pentatonism as evidence of his imminent mental breakdown. Doberman insists that Robeson's rattling on about uh, similarities between seemingly disparate cultures proved him to be manic and compulsive. Wow, fuck uh, you, Doberman. Wow. Yeah, okay. exactly. I yeah. I, I have looked at the footnotes to see when that biography was written, but, uh, you know, sometimes you'd be surprised about, like, how recent these insane things, like, were published, but... Yeah, yeah, like he definitely uh, listens know, to his this... music at 440 hertz. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, definitely, as as recommended by Gehring or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but I mean, of course, like uh, as uh, Perucci does rightly point out, like he kind of failed to recognize the political dimension of that, which is like mm-hmm. creating, you know, kind of we talked about in the past with Malcolm X, like at the time of his death, um, yeah. you know, uh, a move towards solidarity, um, you know, with uh, other cultures, um, you know, uh, with other sort of non-European cultures. Um, yeah, and, he uh, writes that it's know, no uh, it's no coincidence that Robeson highlighted China, Africa, and Indonesia in his theory of musical universalism because those are the sites of intense contestation during the Cold War conflict. Exactly, right? Right. Yeah. So yeah, and you know, uh, this section also talks about like you know again some pretty uh, performance uh, theory brain stuff. Uh, you know, where he talks about like how his voice was like a form of resistance again, like the psychoanalytic framework of this. Uh, who Act Trial is trying to sort of get because uh, his whole theory is that there's like an anti, there's a, of course a theatricality to Huac, but there's also an anti-theatricality to it because mm-hmm. it's trying to sort of enforce its own idea, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's its own image or its own framing of the truth. And uh, Robeson, like being a performer, inherently like resists that because he has like the knowledge to sort of subvert it and, uh, you know, like uh, it creates like the, uh, the anxiety that like oh you know he we can't tell like what he really means you know we need to access yeah. his internal state but because you know he can act or yeah that's the the rest yeah of this, he this he, he says yeah. in the yeah he says in the introduction basically yeah that it was also i mean it was in a very like real way targeted at people in the entertainment industry so yeah, in a way it was true. like yeah. being an actor became a shifty occupation that basically had all these connections to, you know, not just uh, communism, but all, you know, homosexuality and like, you know, moral degeneracy and all these other things. And so they were almost trying to like, but which I was like doubly ironic because they're basically bringing in these actors to put on a performance to like denounce people or name names and, you know, uh, tear at their garments and denounce communism. So they were putting on, yeah, yeah, kind of like anti-theatrical theater. And then Robeson came and refused to like basically participate in that theater and countered with his own theater. And it just became like a, a an arena of theatrical warfare. Yes, uh, true. Yeah, and like, yeah, you're, and yeah, I think you're right that like it's not just anti-theatrical, like theoretically, but also yeah, they were like literally targeting actors and performers and like cultural workers. So that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and this one uh, other section uh, that comes a bit later uh, is called uh, "Mixing Old Man River with Old Man Marx." Um, okay. You know, which uh, talks a little bit about uh, that song, as as we sort of mentioned. He writes, uh, "Robeson has l- had long needed to fight for audiences to understand his performances of Negro spirit." 
spirituals and work songs as voicings of protest and resistance, as they were at Peekskill, instead of the helpless resignation white concert audiences had tended to see in them. White audiences had long accepted the idea of blackness as an abject condition and believed that African Americans accepted second-class status as inevitable. Robeson was dismayed at white audiences' ability to read resistance out of his performances uh, of spirituals and to read resignation into them. As early as 1935, Robeson felt that he could find little audience for what he was trying to do in performance, since white audiences want Negro religious songs from which they take not the suffering, but the comfort of the resignation they express. You know, you, you can get that uh, is a dynamic yeah, yeah, that yeah. definitely still plays out today. Like the oh, sort of absolutely, even yeah, in Hollywood very, and everything, kind of like mm-hmm. the yeah. I mean, I think 12 Years a Slave. Yeah. would probably qualify like it's more mm-hmm. like there's somehow this like white gaze like warms itself into it and it ends up being more about like making the white liberals who are watching it on the coasts like feel really yeah. good and but yeah, also the, like yeah. through this weird resignation thing like it's a uh, yeah, yeah like oh it's just the, the that old of, man river it just keeps rolling yeah. on you know what are we this, gonna do can't yeah. do anything the connection between like the kind of integrationist like sentimentalism and like the uh abolitionist even sentimentalism you know uh is definitely something you can see like a trajectory to the sort of uh white liberal anti-racism of today uh this is a, a good sentence saida hartman traces this perception of black performance to the widely circulated tracks describing slave coffles by white northern abolitionists and what hartman calls quote the violence of identification uh, white audiences describe the hearing of slave songs as a projection of empathy, wherein blackness, rather than enslavement, is constituted as the abject condition. Uh, definitely something that you can see now. This identification mm-hmm. was based not on proximity and communality, but on maintaining and extending boundaries of difference. Uh, one abolitionist explained that, quote, the best way to take the Negroes into your heart is to get as far away from them as possible, end quote. Mm. Uh, and yet such is the power of black song that continued not only to sustain and mobilize African-Americans under slavery, but also serve as testimonials to the brutality of the slave system to uh, northern audiences. So, yeah, it uh, goes on to uh, talk about the performance in Peekskill uh, in particular. So, uh, yeah, but in the 1930s, Robeson began to craft his performances to deliberately emphasize his activist tradition of black music. By using a percussive singing style to counterpoint the deep round tones of his basso voice, Robeson enacted the historical legacy of black resistance as a means of political organization that imagined community with other exploited peoples. When I sing, this is a quote from him, let my people Mm -hmm. go, it must express the need for freedom not only of my own race, that's only part of a bigger thing, but of all the working class here in America all over. I was born of them, they are my people, they will know what I mean. Robeson began his peace kill performance by singing Let My People Go, perhaps the best-known protest song of all Negro spirituals. He concluded his short set with a rendition of Old Man River, for which he is probably uh, best known. Richard Dyer has called Oscar Hammerstein's Old Man River, quote, the ultimate white person's spiritual. <laughs> Hammerstein's song differs from the popular blackface performances that still dominated Broadway during the 1930s by acknowledging the materiality of black suffering and the sentience of black people. However, it recapitulates the idea of blackness as an expression of abjectivity and of resignation as a traditional African-American response. So, Robeson refused to sing the opening line as written, uh, which is uh, N-words all work on the Mississippi. So, Hammerstein changed it to there's an old man called the Mississippi. This change, Mm -hmm. however, does not displace the opening stanza's establishment of the singer's desire to occupy the position of whiteness, define the song as a condition of being free of worries, world problems. Moreover, the rapid tempo of the song and the resilience of white listeners' interpretive practices left audience with reaffirmation of the stereotypes of African Americans as lazy and complacent. 
One review of an early recording of the song by Robeson performed with Paul Whitman's orchestra uh, reveals the ways in which racism overdetermined white hearings of the song. To anyone who knows the southern states, Paul Robeson singing Old Man River will conjure up quite unforgettable picture. The hot sun beating on colored folk, lolling at their ease, or even stretched out fast asleep. And it takes a Negro to be able to sleep in the full glare of a subtropical sun. Somewhere <laughs> a ban- So you can see, imagine like Paul yeah. Robeson like reading this and just losing his, like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, somewhere a banjo is heard. Slowly, sleepily, the whole gathering takes up the tune. Someone claps their hands. There is a shuffling of feet. A young buck, uh, N-word, rouses himself and breaks into a dance. Another joins him. Soon the quay is alive with dancing, gesticulating figures. The player, tired, puts his hand over the strings to still the last throbbing chord. The dancers stop with a jerk. Men and women sink to the ground almost where they stood, and once more the quayside sleeps. Yeah. That is some, like, um, perverse, like, Nancy Pelosi yeah. wearing a dashiki energy. Like, uh, oh, God. Yeah, for sure. Right, yes. But, uh, yeah, so Robeson wow. started to change the song because he was so famous uh, for it. You know, he started to make, uh, yeah. his, you know, improvisations. Mm-hmm. Um, so at peak skill, as he had done many times before, he recast the figure of Old Man River as a greedy and exploitative capitalist, clarifying mm. in his new opening, that's the old man I don't want to be. Moreover, Ooh. Robeson's response to the exploitation described in the song is not the melancholic lot envisioned by Hammerstein, jailed for drinking. Rather, Robeson yeah. articulates the imprisoned African Americans as political prisoners. Uh, you show a little grit, show a little and grit. You in jail. Exactly. Yeah. Instead of you yeah. Drink a I was just listening to. Yeah. Uh, I have. Uh, I have an old vinyl record of I think like his last record, which is like his farewell concert in Carnegie Hall in '58. And on that rendition of Old Man River, he he he's got the fire lyrics, like the new ones that yeah. he put in there. So yeah, he he was able to basically like recapture or insert you know like reframe it as a radical song basically even though it started out as something that was like very uh problematic <laughs> like yeah. you know, the ultimate white man so, spiritual he was able to like take it back and reclaim it basically and then give it this like class like basically in this beautiful way that i think is like that's uh, like I-, I love that about robeson that he you know used art basically and even used like quite kind of hostile materials and also like viewed his position in society as like, okay, this is my number one hit. What do I do with it? And like, and made it into a song that merged the ideas of like the civil rights struggle and the labor struggle thematically in like a perfect way that still preserved, like everyone would still be like, yeah, old man river. But like he put these like subtle twists on it that embody like what he actually wants to say like very deftly and perfectly like it's very impressive yeah old man river like yeah went from being like you know well that's just the way things are to being like you know the systemic forces that like he'll fight against you know like he changed it from like you know i you know i'm scared of dying to like i must keep fighting until i'm dying until i'm dying Uh, yep yep that's right yeah and he sings it with uh, such conviction it's like better it's it's definitely an improvement like a huge improvement just on a basic aesthetic level it's more defined you know well and the fact of knowing like what it was like makes it even more powerful and of course like people got like super mad speaking of of white liberals (laughs) uh they got oh really this is what uh perucci says he recounts some of this stuff by asserting the will to fight until death against the intransigent an old man river ropes and signals uh the length of potential ambushers of american racial order by showing himself to be quote mad his performances threatened to quote infect his listeners with a particular brand of madness long oh. before peak scale robeson's version of the song was thought to infect listeners with his madness 
Robeson's performances of the song were celebrated for the, quote, provocation they could have had upon white listeners' mental stability. There was something about his voice that was almost alarming. Those who listened to this performance simply went out of their minds. Robeson was roundly attacked in the press for his racialization of this white person's spiritual. The New Yorker contended that it was when Robeson radicalized his performance that he became an enemy of the state, complaining that when Robeson mixes Old Man River with Old Man Marx, he is being unfair to the Mississippi and is playing fast and loose. (laughs) He's playing fast and loose with the Negro race for whom he purports to speak. Robeson lost, quote, the people as an audience when he began to make pronouncements that were largely unpopular. Um, okay, so, no, this yeah. is exactly, I know it's like a little bit different, but this is the exact same energy of everybody like erming Brian De Palma for making Redacted yeah. and calling it a war crime. Like, or, sorry, or sir, erming, you lost uh, us. Or Busta Rhymes. Yeah, erming Busta Rhymes for saying that like Bohemian Grove is real or something like that. Yeah, you know? like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Erm, or somebody uh, saying that like yeah. the Bilderberg group has meetings. Like, yeah, you exactly. know, <laughs> excuse yeah. me. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, wait, you think that's real? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I, I just want to, uh, just to, like, piggyback real off that, because also, I think you mentioned it in there that, like, he was, uh, uh, his his spreading of, like, this version of the song was seen as, like, a virus or a pathogen. Just thought it would be, like, yeah. relevant for today, because he makes, Perucci makes this allusion a number of times throughout the book. In this one quote, uh, he says, uh, these uh, theoretical uh, and performance praxes that constitute the resistive and ruptural elements of the Cold War performance complex understand race and racism as material linked to capitalist exploitation of labor that must be resisted through political and social means rather than simply adjusted to by the psychoanalytic rhetoric that came to dominate liberal anti-racist discourse and yet robeson was condemned by peak skillite anti-communists and their defenders for having vocally spread a contagious pathogen that gave its victims communist quote madness this infectious invasion that robeson was thought to embody operated as a justification of mob violence against the largely black and jewish concert goers he does yeah he mentions that a number of times that he was viewed as like this kind of like mental contagion that needed yeah. to be managed almost in like a public health way. That was how a lot of like liberal mm-hmm. anti-communists would kind of spin and take it to to criticize Robeson and which is not that far from kind of the portrayal of like I was a communist for the FBI where these like ultra cynical communists are just like lying to black folks and yeah. you know and then like calling them the n-word behind the, the closed doors and like laughing about how they're just manipulating everybody with you know yeah, this quote from the Peekskill Evening Star is a great example of what you're talking about. Uh, the present, it says, uh, the present days seem to be crucial ones for the residents of this area with the present epidemic of polio. Now we are being plagued by another, namely the appearance of Paul Robeson and his communistic followers. It is an epidemic because they are coming here to induce others to join their ranks, and it is unfortunate that some of the weaker-minded are susceptible to their fallacious teachings unless something is done by the loyal Americans of this area. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, I love yeah, how that's like, the exact, like, inversion of the, like, racism is, like, the real virus of 2020. It's like, uh, yeah. no, like, you think polio is a virus? Like, communist infiltration is the real virus of 1951. Um, yeah. Or something like um, that. Like As we talked about, like, with Dark Winter, like, it's the same sort of, like, thing where the crisis situation that justifies, like, you know, the HUAC stuff or the, you know, the riots, like, that is maintained by this idea, like, you know, the, the, the epidemic makes it uh, okay. You know, the idea yes. of, like, yes. the, the disease, like, you know, you know, these weaker-minded people are going to be 
susceptible uh you know i even remember like uh the uh like there's this dude uh, bernard uh, of Cl- uh clairvaux i believe like uh mm-hmm. it was like a 12th century catholic priest or something who was like a big crusade uh booster and mm-hmm. uh i remember him saying something like when you kill a, a muslim it's not really a homicide it's a malicide uh you're killing evil and like if you do that that's uh okay because it's necessary to stop like the spread of this like shadow from like going over like other people and possibly making Mm. their souls be endangered you know like so uh, they're just like they're npcs caught in the islamo matrix and you it's okay to kill them yeah it's justified yeah because like if islam spreads then the scepter of evil will be upon like all these poor people's souls you know so they won't like, really I be living like, anyway they're already dead in a i way. guess it's really a, yeah i guess it's really a classic uh thing you know a, a perennial thing of like dehumanization but uh yeah but that, i mean that a, sounds a, very a, similar a to like yeah. the way that people yeah. would talk about communists is like well they're all brainwashed so like you might just have to kill oh, them absolutely. all because they're just automatons yeah. like you know they, they, yeah, they the, they've or, given up yeah. their humanity by indulging in this right. you know evil philosophy yeah, zombie plague of like insects yeah. Or so, yeah and and you know we and instead of reckoning with the idea that anybody could find like value in sort of marxism or socialist politics or the uh, the countries that were like implementing socialism in the 20th century this sneaky little way of just medicalizing and pathologizing the appeal for you know very material thing i mean to say to like an african-american in like the 50s that you must be mentally ill if you want to like if you admire a society where like racism is illegal and people are running around like firebombing churches and like lynching people around you and you're a complete second set class citizen yeah. like just the, the gall of that but i mean it, it definitely worked i think especially in regards to like white liberals of that time in terms of yeah. like giving them an excuse to basically like like it's taking an inherently political problem and like medicalizing it just like what they would do with like you know pandemics today or any other other number of things or like the dark winter they're taking like what is really a like even like a bioterror attack is like a political fundamentally like it, it's a political crisis right you like mm. somebody attacked yeah, you probably many for like political reasons of many aspects of what we're witnessing now like the you know the pandemic even though obviously it is a medical issue yeah. like there's many political dimensions to it that like mm-hmm. aren't like engaged properly and in fact like the aspect of the pandemic is a great way to like put this pall of like you know uh, a medical uh crisis over like all politics uh yeah. and to put yeah. all politics within the arena of yeah like you mentioned like you know when trust the science the anti-racism right? protests it has to be like well you know racism is also a public health emergency like all right yeah <laughs> sure but yeah. like it's all like kind of like a political like yeah like yeah why they're, is they're everything intermingling these two things like chill like you know yeah like uh yeah it's just Th- like there you seems have to, to put this somehow into the framework of this like medical thing but yeah like uh uh, also, like, yeah. it's very interesting how you can almost see, like, the superficiality of, like, the whole thing of, like, liberalism versus communism or, like, the individuality. Like, uh, you know, Paul Robeson in his HUAC testimony even said, like, you know, in Russia, 
you know, and to be fair, like, yeah, as we said, like, they probably rolled the red carpet for him and everything, like, but he said, like, you know, in Russia, I felt like, you know, I was a man, you know, I didn't feel colored prejudice, I felt like, you know, I was, like, he felt like his full self, you know, yeah. and if you're mentally ill, then, like, you're not yourself, you know, that's something that it goes all mm. the way back to, it predates the, like, you know, of course, with communism and capitalism, like, the way that it's framed is very much, like, individualism versus collectivism, yeah. Yeah. you know, but that, yeah, exactly. like, fear, like, goes way back before communism like was a thing it's all like an old thing where it's like all the you know the uh liberal individual or even like the you know the the christian subject or something like Mm -hmm. versus like these hordes of homogenized you know people who aren't themselves and who are like one one body it's like you know it yeah it shows the superficiality of this thing where like oh if you're communist then yeah like again like it almost seems it seems more facile in a way because there is like an aspect of solidarity and like you know uh collectivism in in communism but like the polemic against it really like you know the idea that like oh you have to give up your individuality yeah like like, you know well uh, there was actually in one of the radio interviews i listened to him on uh our favorite public radio station kpfa i think in 1958 uh in a segment called uh paul robeson speaks uh i think during that interview uh the i think it was like the director of kpfa i think his name is uh harold winkler he basically he posed a kind of interesting question to robeson and of course this is like pacifica radio so they are kind of relatively uh while they are like not communists themselves like they're out there in oakland and they're very like uh, sympathetic to him compared to everybody else but harold wrinkler asks him you know like when i was over in europe uh, a little while ago i met a member of the french communist party and he told me that you know, in order for us to progress to like the next, you know, stage of human civilization to like socialism, which he believes is necessary. He, he believed that like, uh, he said, I am giving up my freedom now to certain individuals who are going to lead the way. And so that my children and grandchildren can have like true freedom. And he asked Paul Robeson, like, what do you think about that? Like, do you agree? And I feel like Robeson immediately kind of detected like, oh, I see what's (laughs) going on here. Uh, And he was just like, no, 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 no. I would put it like quite differently. No, like that's not like I disagree with like the entire framing of that, that you have to if you're like a good if it like communists have to give up their freedom. And then, you know, he said he said, you know, I think he he was choosing his words like very carefully, but kind of saying that like I you know, they're like, do you believe you believe in, you know, socialism, like democratic socialism, right? And he's like, yes, of course, of course, I mean, democratic socialism like that's very that's absolutely necessary and he was really so good at like talking to americans about this stuff but still they were like Uh, kind of tried they were like doing a little tanky check on him they were like yeah Mm -hmm. but paul like what about and you know what about our individualism man and uh but he was like you know i went to like russia and like this is a hard thing to quantify but basically you know uh well he said one time i went down to south carolina and you know there was a black um sharecropper who i met with and uh you know he said like welcome to our plantation fields and he said uh r are you you sure about that (laughs) you know like uh it's like a very few number of people own all these plantations and you just work and they exploit your labor but he said you know for for what it's worth from what he had seen inside the soviet union that even though uh yes like they're in the dictatorship of the proletariat uh there are certain things that you know you don't 
might be like there are certain uh, curtailments on things that we would consider like you know absolute free speech or whatnot but uh, the if you ask the average person on the street his bet would be that they feel much more that they have at least like a stake in the entire country and that they have like a part a part you know a certain part of it belongs to them and everybody's in it together and you know that's somewhat subjective but so he would oppose that entire like paradigm of oh in one society you're like totally free and then the other society you're like totally equal he doesn't really see it in those terms at all so yeah, yeah. it seems like uh, the kpfa uh complex uh also hasn't changed uh, very much uh nope since the getting, beginning uh, still getting the same counter signals out of uh that uh, <laughs> So, Paul, like, dude, tell me. And I mean, the Yeti is flesh and blood, wouldn't you say? (laughs) Uh, um, Oh, yeah. yeah. uh, We are going to do a KPFA episode one of these days. Uh, Well, we have to do that deep dive. Um, But, you know, I mean, they were nice to Paul. Uh, They didn't blacklist him, I mean, et cetera. But. um, Yeah, true. They didn't try to lynch him. So I guess that by the. They were good by the standards of the time. Anyway. They they had. They almost earned him a couple times over. Yeah. By the way, I also think like that French guy, like chill out. Like I want to give away my freedom for two generations. Like no, that does not. That didn't sound good to people. Like, uh, like I feel like Paul Rosen immediately was just like, oh god, like why did that guy say that? That's like the white liberal like thing today of like you know like please execute me like you know for my like imperial you know like imperialist simplicity yeah, yeah. like you know let me kneel down and like wash your feet or whatever like yeah. you know or, it is just yeah. going a little too far um, like chill out like yeah. uh, you know get your government yeah, that, to stop like yeah. bombing Algeria uh, first doing, and then yeah, work on exactly. giving I'm up your freedom. I'm feeling a little bit of like uh, the psychoanalytic impulse myself when like people are like I need to like uh, tie myself up like chain myself to the bed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and, no, yeah. it's true. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah it um, was a thing. That defines my philosophy. It's a joining one of we are a working people, a laboring people, a labor people. There is a unity between our struggle and those of white workers in the South. I've had white workers shake my hand and say, Paul, we are fighting for the same thing. And so this defines my attitude towards socialism and toward many other things in the world. I do not believe that a few people should control the wealth of any land. It should be a collective ownership in the interest of Is that a democratic socialism or? I would have to be a democratic socialism. There are many ways, however, to, to a struggle toward democracy, as I see that in a place like China, for example, today, the Soviet Union, many other places, or take our own problems uh, of, of Negroes. If we were free in the South tomorrow to carry our weight, to vote into everything, would we now look around and try to find the 10 billionaires among our people? we attempt to build them up, or would we try to answer the needs of the great millions of our people? And so I see other ways of life, socialism, as trying to solve the problems of millions and tens of millions of peoples at once, in a way, instead of the instead of we would start from the individual to the masses, they start from the masses this way. Now, there are two ways, and they're difficult as each way. I, I have made the decision to join in a collective struggle, and the reason that my personal Sacrifices mean very little in the struggle. In one way, when you see the children of Little Rock, what does, what does not giving a few concerts mean if you can make some contribution? It's in that context. So nothing is perfect in the world. We're going toward it from different angles. I feel is a great 
burden of proof on every society, on our own as well, today. Mr. Robeson, some years ago, I was talking to a French member of the Communist Party. And in the course of our discussion, he said to me, uh, you, Mr. Winkler, are a Jeffersonian Democrat. You can afford it in your rich uh, uh, land. But in my land and in other lands, we must give up our freedom now to certain men in order to achieve freedom for our children in the future. This is an act of faith for me, he said, giving up my freedom now. Uh, do you find yourself sympathetic with... Uh, I don't think that is... Uh, I would put it quite differently. No, nor do I think that's any part of, uh, of any socialist philosophy or communist philosophy, as far as I know, uh, that uh, we struck it during the, during the war under Roosevelt, for example. We had to give up many privileges. Uh, they're practically telling us we have to do that again. Sort of war economy in England. England, for example, they have not eaten eggs almost for years and years because of certain pressures. And it seems to me in the socialist lands, the Soviet Union, China, and many places, that that's quite true. It's one thing to say today uh, that they don't have as uh, as shining apparel as we do, but they have uh, made tremendous scientific progress, and within a one generation, so to speak, within 40 years have become one of the most powerful countries in the world. Now, they've done it by great sacrifices, and not by, to my mind, uh, they feel that the country in one sense, the man in the street, uh, may not in every essence belong to him, but he feels it's much more his than, say, uh, I do in Charleston, South Carolina. When one Amer uh, Southern American Negro explained to me that I was in the state of our great plantations, I said, are you sure about that, our great plantations? I don't feel that they're my plantations. But in one sense, some of the people in socialist lands feel that the country does belong to them in a real sense. Before we go, like, further, should we just, like, circle back and, like, I don't know, fill in a little bit about his, like, biography? I yeah, mean, we're we already do, like, an hour and a half in, but, yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Um, we yeah. Just, I mean, I think I we, like, we mentioned know, yeah, in yeah, passing. Yeah, maybe, maybe his, like, political yeah. evolution, most importantly... Yeah, whatever kind of, topic of it you want to cover. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, how did he uh, end up yeah. becoming, like, the the greatest, like, you know, American tanky, um, you know, of um, all time? Yeah, uh, uh, word. Uh, how? Yeah. How? Well, um, okay, so, I mean, basically, he grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, the college town. His father, who had been born a slave in North Carolina and then ran away, uh, was a minister, uh, he was a, mm -hmm. a preacher in uh, in Princeton and I guess like really raised Paul to like strive for excellence in like every single category. Um, I think his mom passed away when he was five or six, but he was like very prodigious student and like an excellent athlete. So he got a football scholarship to Rutgers College. That I guess was a big moment for him because of the like extremely violent racism he experienced when he like tried out for the team. I think in the documentary it has him describing the first day of like someone just came up and like punched him in the face and then like people threw him on the ground and started like stomping on him. But then he like jumped back up and like pounced on like this other guy and was basically like, I'm going to kill you, you son of a bitch. Then I guess they like blowed the whistle and were like, all right, 
and he was like i made the team yeah. but that was like a uh that was like his first thing i guess his dad was like really instilled in him you know it's a, a classic thing like you need to do everything like backwards and like in heel like you need to be the absolute best you need to like have the absolute best behavior if you lash out at anybody you talk shit to you or you know like hits you then you'll be called a savage and so you have to like play this game and you just have to like figure out how to win it and like do whatever it takes so like he was a he was an all-american football player kind of became like a star and then afterwards uh he was in the nfl i mean can you like imagine this that like he's in the nfl while going to columbia law school and then mm-hmm. he, Damn. Yeah, crazy. yeah, which he didn't like love the law, but it figured like that was the easiest path for him to like mm-hmm. a professional career. So he moved to Harlem and was like a big kind of like celebrity there. Like everybody loved him and, you know, he became a lawyer, but then I guess he had like a pretty upsetting experience uh, when he got a job at a white law firm. One of his first days there, he called in one of the white secretaries uh, and asked her to dictate something. And she said, like, I don't do dictation for n-words and uh, wow. uh yeah yeah and then after that like the the kind of the partners in the firm kind of like informed him that you know none of the white clients they had would consent to him like working on their cases or representing them so i think <laughs> they tried to be like oh why don't you go up to like harlem and like you can represent some black clients or something like that but he was very it basically the way they said in the documentary he had no interest in like pursuing a profession that he couldn't t- rise to the top of and so he realized law was like basically whatever but then at the same time he started getting into theater and then that's when he started like auditioning for some parts and started getting parts and became a really big part of like the new york avant-garde theater scene in the 20s and um i guess uh he shot he shot he started shooting some like silent films at that time he shot a film with oscar michaud who i'd like to look into more i guess he was like kind of the preeminent like black independent filmmaker in the 20s uh he did some like nude portrait studies uh with another like avant-garde photographer uh in the 20s and then i think that was when he first got the role of othello right uh that was a well he played othello like a bit late right didn't he oh yeah i guess like, he'll, he'll, he did a uh, eugenio neo plays right yeah yeah i remember he was in the emperor jones that was like, yes. a big thing uh yeah uh and all emperor gods chilling got wings by eugene o'neill yeah right? right yeah uh yeah yeah it took a while for that to uh come out i think that like ran like that had some bumpy thing because it had some controversial plot line like involving like well that was like about miscegenation as well like it was about, i think so uh, yeah yeah um yeah so uh yeah actually it's interesting because that play is about like a a black lawyer who like is married to a white woman who like kind of like uh subconsciously like hates him and like sabotages his career and tries to like destroy him so yeah it's a it's pretty interesting role the emperor jones though is probably what he was like most famous for and that was kind of like about haiti um, mm-hmm. You know, he sort of played like kind of a uh, a tyrant, sort of. He's a titular Emperor Jones. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was um, in the backdrop of like the U.S. occupation of Haiti. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I forget exactly when, but uh, yeah, but yeah, that was um, a bit. Yeah, that, that was, was kind of a breakthrough like, for him. Yeah, like uh, I mean, Paul wrote like people's analysis of Paul Robeson's like performance in it. You know, uh, they saw that like he kind of reclaimed like the the play in the same way that he did with like Old Man River in, in some respects because it's kind of yeah. I feel like it's a little bit like reactionary in terms of like Haiti. You know, not the best like perception on their best take on on the yeah. Haiti situation. Well, but, Eugene O'Neill was yeah. a Fabian. Let's be real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Eugene O'Neill so, you know, definitely mm-hmm. had some problems, yeah. Uh, kind of a socialist, yeah. but, like, in that, uh, I think he was, like, hanging out with the Huxleys and shit. Like, H.G. Uh, Wells, yeah. that whole group. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I guess yeah, better than nothing. The, I didn't really consider the, like, uh, eugenic angle on uh, Eugene O'Neill. I feel like my picture of Eugene O'Neill is that he was just, like, so, like, drunk that he like you know yeah uh, i mean i don't know how he felt about i don't know how he felt about eugenics per se but i just mean that that general fabian socialist milieu in like the uk he was yeah. i believe he was like a um, member of that so i think i don't yeah. know i'm hard to say how like, sus you know, he really was yeah again <clears throat> like uh you know, I, I feel like maybe there's like he's perhaps more sympathetic than some people, but yeah, the Emperor Jones definitely has uh, it's definitely something that's still taught in theater classes today when they're trying to you know uh, have some diversity or whatever. Mm. But yeah, it definitely has as its problem. But that was that de- I would say like his breakout role before you know uh, getting like Showboat and Othello and everything. Othello yeah, was yeah, sh- because you know. Othello is like, yeah, that sort of shows a connection to this tr- tradition of like the pathologization, pathologization of like racial violence or racial uh, oppression or, or and things mm-hmm. like that. You know, the the crazy Othello. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and sort of and of course he was the he yeah. was only the I guess probably only the second black actor to play Othello in Britain since Ira Allendridge, who was an American actor who played it in the 1820s. So basically, in like a hundred years, like like I mean, this is a character who is described as a Moor by Shakespeare, right? Yeah. And there's right. been some yeah, like uh, supposed to be black, yeah. Yeah, basically um, supposed to be well, African, and but they yeah, often like, played I mean, by the, like a white like, person in like brown face, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Lawrence yeah. Olivier played Othello in blackface, like you know. Uh, God, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean that's like <laughs> how, like yeah, that's how it was. I mean the institution of blackface, like in the American theater, like it gets much deeper than that i think when he was coming up really like it was still a time when like you had tons of like you really white people doing like blackface routines and also like one of the main ways for black people to break in like still you know in that sort of follies era you know maybe mm-hmm. uh yeah during that time like you know one of the main ways for black people to break, break into show business like you know wasn't really doing these avant-garde plays but a lot of the time it was doing things like minstrel shows basically um, yeah oh for sure i mean yeah, yeah they, they went through that in the documentary how they both showed a lot of different footage of like uh of like blackface minstrel movies in the 1930s which were like very popular and then movies they, they did start to have movies that did have black characters in them but almost all of them were yeah basically still minstrelsy they were relegated to like servant roles or like goofy kind of like sidekicks and or layabouts or you know something menacing but like never anything never any character with any interiority or equal status uh and so to the extent that like some of yes some he really broke ground i mean i think by by jumping into like othello in um what was the first year that he did it in 1930 i believe 
that was, you know, a huge deal because it also dealt, like you said, with miscegenation, the plot of that that play. Yeah. And so it, it definitely stirred up a bit of like controversy and excitement and all these other things. And, you know, he was also he like killed it. Right. I mean, I think yeah, by all accounts, yeah. like it was a fantastic mm, yeah. rendition of Othello. Mm-hmm. And he did that over in London. But then I think he came over back in the 30s. He, I think, came back to star in some movies. I think he, he also did star in the film version of The Emperor Jones. Uh, but most of the roles that he got at that, and he was like kind of a star by this point. He had started, I believe he had started singing as well. You know, the plots were like extremely racist and like shitty and he was relegated to roles that did not like meet his actual stature like the sanders of the river where which i think kind of like really actually a lot of these were actually british films um because after a few years he got sick of like trying to labor under hollywood and they were like super restrictive so he went to britain but then he found out that a lot of movies he ended up in were kind of like reifying like british imperialism in africa and like colonialism and right sanders of the river like i think that he like thought that was gonna be you know like a more uh accurate portrayal of like colonial rule in africa but then like it you know uh, according to him like in the last five days of shooting they like went in and they like you know made it all about how base like British imperialism is. Uh, wow, they did know. those pickups um, and just yeah, he, <laughs> jammed it he in said, there. Uh, the imperialist plot had been placed in the plot during the last five days of shooting. I was roped into the picture because I wanted to portray the culture of the African people, and I committed a faux pas, which convinced me that I had failed to weigh the problems of 150 uh, million native Africans. I hate the picture. <laughs> Um, (laughs) he did hate it he did also that so part of that or part of the significance of that is that while he was in britain uh starring in uh othello and he was there for like a couple years or yeah he was there for uh, some years like in the early 1930s uh he and his wife essie started uh who was like no intellectual slouch uh herself i think uh i forget which ivy league she went to she like studied chemistry and stuff but she was really like kind of his like his manager and like his you know, sort of advocate, but they both started going to the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, and they both started learning foreign languages, uh, including Swahili. And this is like where Robeson started to develop like a really passionate interest in Africa. And I guess he wrote an essay around that time titled I Want to Be an African. But interestingly, he made friends with some fellow young students who were there, including Kwame Nkrumah, who, of course, was like the later like decades later, we would become the first like socialist president of Ghana, who I think was uh, overthrown in a coup that the CIA had something to do with. But, you know, like he. Yeah. yeah and uh, and Jomo Kenyatta as well, who is uh, who was the prime minister of Kenya uh, in the 1960s and the president and was a big like anti-colonial activist. So he started meeting these kind of like African sort of proto-revolutionary types 
and learned a lot about like the you know the struggle against like European imperialism there and got and you know basically got kind of hyped up with uh with that but then at the same time something else kind of funny happened where I guess after a concert in London this is like I think in like 1932 a very important thing happened where he left the concert and like marching past were a gigantic like crowd of marching and striking Welsh miners who were singing like folk labor songs basically and I guess he was like so struck by like the beauty of like their songs and like their you know just the presence of them that he just like joined them and started marching with them like immediately and after that like he got to go to Wales and he went and met with like the Welsh coal miners and I guess like he developed this like affinity for like Welsh people for their folkloric like traditions for their songs which he compared to basically like African and like African American music and like you know African folk traditions, kind of one of the earliest times where he like connected to disparate folk cultures and kind of saw this like com this commonality or whatever. Uh, and he like went down to the mines with the Welsh miners to like observe their conditions. And I guess like a Welsh miner, he relayed this in the KPFA interview told him you don't belong with like the fancy do what's or whatever up there like you you're one of us like you're a working person like you're an oppressed working person and so like you shouldn't identify with like those rich bougie british people that you meet in london and i guess like he agreed and was like yeah this is badass so he started agitating a lot for like the labor struggle in like the welsh mining areas and that I think is also and then meeting these African, you know, anti-colonial Africans who were studying London. Uh, I think this is probably around the time that he started reading maybe some little bit of Marx and Engels and people like that, maybe a little Lenin in this period. But then when he was, you know, starring in these movies in the 30s, they would trick him into making movies that like stand British imperialism. So he obviously hated that (laughs) and like it sucked. Yeah. Um, Well, again, he kind of like tried to, he thought like he signed up for that on the position, like on the condition that they would portray Africans positively. And that was something that came out of like his studies of African cultures and like Swahili. And he was like, Oh, I'll play like the leader of the, you know, Africans in this film, you know, and I can give him dignity, you know, it was the same kind of thing where he was trying to like do kind of a subversive performance that would kind of go against the grain of the material a little bit, but they like got really heavy handed with like how pro-imperialist it was like in those like uh, last five days of shooting. He actually got so pissed off that he tried to like buy like all printings of the movie so that it like would never be shown. Yeah, to cap off like how he felt about Hollywood and the British uh, film industry, in that uh, book, it said, like, ultimately, Robeson was disgusted by the Uncle Tom and Steppen Fetchit roles he was continually offered in the United States, appearing in only one other American film, uh, the all-star Tales of Manhattan in 1942. However, the film's stereotypical representation of blacks as foolish and superstitious confirmed Robeson's suspicion that the Hollywood film industry, as a vertically integrated capitalist enterprise, was incapable of producing progressive representations of black characters and black life. Uh, still kind of rings true today, doesn't it? Like, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, 
it's it, it's progressed kind of like not as much as you would hope. Uh, I think in yeah, well, uh, what is this, about before, eighty like years it requires like an institutional change that's like not going to be made. Uh, yes, so, yes. I don't know. And yeah. he was right as, as a uh, vertically integrated capitalist enterprise, and definitely by nineteen forty two, he was thinking in those terms as yeah, Hollywood. Yeah, yeah you can't just do like Ryan Murphy's Hollywood and like you know, uh, I don't know, Hollywood like ends racism by fiat in like 1951 Mm -hmm. and also the red scare never existed but anyways um so I thought for a second we can well we can talk about a little bit about Paul Robeson's political evolution in the 1930s and how he increasingly got involved uh, with various radical political struggles uh, and then how that led into World War II where you know, in a very curious uh, historical anomaly, he was able to become the number one celebrity in the United States while also being like an open sympathizer with the Soviet Union mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for that period of time. But but so, you know, going back to like when he was in the uh, he enrolled in the School of Oriental and African Studies in London in 1934 
uh, you know, he he met people like Kwame Nkrumah um, and started associating with like the anti-imperialist movement and uh, various British socialists. Got into the Welsh mining struggles, and I guess uh, his uh, exposure to all of that led him to decide to visit the Soviet Union, which he did in uh, nineteen uh, December nineteen thirty four at the invitation of Sergei Eisenstein, the famous Soviet film director. Yes. And uh, he actually, Eisenstein invited him uh, to the USSR to basically talk about doing a movie that he was sort of, you know, mulling over about the Haitian revolution that he maybe wanted Robeson to star in. Unfortunately, I guess it never materialized. But on the way to the Soviet Union, he had a stopover in Berlin and basically saw like nazism up close and was like yikes uh and realized kind of like the level of racism and uh fashiness that was occurring in that country and uh when he got to moscow uh he said very famously we quoted it earlier here i am not a negro but a human being for the first time in my life i walk in full human dignity and I guess he did some like he did some performances there, accompanied by the piano, and had a had a pretty great time. As you said, like they definitely did kind of like roll the red carpet out for him, uh, so to speak. Uh, but you know, he I guess traveled around to a number of different places and was like very inspired by what he saw overall. So then he started getting into the Spanish Civil War later in the 30s. He really started to believe that, like, the, the upcoming struggle against fascism was going to be, like, the defining, you know, uh, battleground, basically, for the, the workers' movement and the civil rights movement. He sort of saw, basically, I think quite correctly, the sort of um, the synergy between, like, violent, uh, kind of, like, violent uh, white or ethnic supremacist uh, kind of ideology and then, like, a totalitarian kind of version of capitalism— basically imperialism that was going to basically, you know, uh, strike back hard at the sort of, you know, Bolshevik uh, threat that it, it had uh, encountered. So he went to uh, Spain during the Civil War a couple times and uh, sang for the Republican uh, and the International Brigades and sang to wounded soldiers. Uh, he visited the battlefront, I guess provided a you know big morale boost for them at a tough time. He went back to England and hosted uh, Jawaharlal Nehru uh, in support of Indian yes. independence. Uh, mm -hmm. Then he... Around the late 30s, he, he reevaluated the direction of his career and decided to focus more on the ideals of common people. And he actually, at this time, he appeared in a pro-labor play called Plant in the Sun, in which he played an Irishman, which was his first white role, <laughs> which is kind of interesting. <laughs> interesting, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then he... <laughs> well, uh, yes, very, uh, is, uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you know those Irish. Uh, anyway, yeah. Well, you know, um, I mean, uh, he supported yeah. them too. Their their liberation right. struggle. Um, yes. He definitely had love for like the peripheral Europeans. You know what I mean? Like. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, definitely. Not the Teutons so much, but uh, then he did make Proud Valley. That was his last British film, and that was like a pro-labor drama set in a Welsh coal mining town. And I guess that the experience of making that movie kind of further radicalized him even more. He got even deeper with like the Welsh coal miners that you know he loved. Um, and then big turning point happens with the start of World War II, and he decides 
to go back to the United States, which at this point, you know, under FDR had a kind of tentative alliance with the Soviet Union against the Nazis. And so he figured that he could play maybe a productive role back in his home country and, uh, you know, support the war effort against fascism. So I guess he he got brought on uh, like a radio special called Ballad for Americans in 1940 after he had moved back to Connecticut. And he gave this like singing performance where I think he sang the Star Spangled Banner and a couple of other patriotic songs. And it was like a smash hit. It was like they got more phone calls than they ever got to the radio station. And it like recatapulted Robeson back to being like the number one star in America. And he was incredibly active uh, during the war, going around like giving events like to buy U.S. war bonds. He met with uh, Soviet emissaries that were like you know coming to america to sort of hold rallies to like support the lend lease program and things like that at that that was at the time that he he met and became friends with uh two people from the jewish anti-fascist committee in the soviet union solomon mccall's and itzik pfeffer who will kind of come up later and yeah he this is also the time uh i i thought it was like worth mentioning because i saw there was some like socialist account on twitter recently that uh kind of it quoted a popular line that the communist party uh usa head came up with i think in 40 or 41 during this popular front period where at like liberals and like communists were you know kind of allied uh that is a uh, communism is or it would go either way. Either socialism or communism is 20th century Americanism. And uh, somebody posted that the other day with, like, a picture of Paul Robeson during World War II with, like, a big American flag behind him, kind of implying that that was, like, that was Paul Robeson's philosophy and we should try to do that. I think it was it was kind of in, like, a, a post-left kind of way they were sort of suggesting this, that instead of, like, I don't know, running around, like, like, leftists like uh, calling america kkk like the shittiest country ever and it sucks and like let's burn flags Mm -hmm. uh like embracing like trying to find a way to like promote socialism in a patriotic context and so and and then that's we got lit up by a lot of people like what the fuck are you talking about like you know uh like you're misrepresenting paul robeson and i think it is kind of misrepresenting paul robeson to some degree i think it's kind of taking that that particular line of theirs like out of context a little bit because they were doing that at a moment when there was a popular front they were engaged in a war and i i do think there's like a grain of something there and i think it it's worth paying attention to that robeson would you know kind of go along with that kind of framing of say like you know communism or you know uh like a radical workers movement or something that almost in like that late 19th century like prairie populist kind of way there is a, there are certain currents that uh, in american culture and even if you're looking at it through a marxist angle you know marx spoke about how relative to the you know economic and political systems that were in place in the 18th century the uh the american revolution was like relatively progressive but it doesn't mean that it's like it, it's progressive in the way that like Americans worship it as like just this amazing right. event. Like obviously it like it ensconced like slavery in half of the country and, you yeah. know, uh, also set up yeah, like a lot of like anti-democratic to, like, things. 
Yeah, they were mostly trying to wrest control of, like, the slave system, uh, and, like, enrich themselves. It was, like, uh, it was a, it was a counter-revolution, uh, but, anyway, yeah. Well, um, I mean, I believe some people are yeah. kind of saying that nowadays, that it's, like, a counter-revolution, but I think that also kind of, like, maybe gives the Brit the, the nefarious Malthusian scum of the British Empire yeah, the a Anglo little bit too much Empire. credit, that, like, they were gonna, like, end slavery, and they were gonna do all these progressive things, but the evil American farmers, well, like, didn't want didn't them to. I think it's a little more complicated than that. They didn't end slavery because they were progressive. They ended up because they found better ways to exploit Africa. Um, yeah, or that yeah, exactly. Profitable, it, it stopped being useful uh, so to them, and so they wanted to get rid of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah but exactly. uh, but I think that like um, if you look at it through like Marx is like pretty clear eyed. I think about that 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 still the it was a bourgeois revolution. Like I, I think I would prefer yeah, calling it a bourgeois uh, revolution rather than like a counter revolution because the force they were replacing was like yeah, it wasn't older really and like countering uh, anything so much. Yeah, true. Yeah, counter revolution uh, implies yeah. that you're 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 countering a revolution that exists and it's hard to say yeah, that Britain exactly. like was yeah, that. But but you know yeah, there's that aspect it's and kind you know of like an edgy designation, but uh, it is, it yeah. is. Uh, um, but but I would say bourgeois revolution, I think objectively that's like pretty much what it was and for that time mm -hmm. it did spark a flame that led to more revolutions i mean including places like haiti though i don't think any of the founding fathers would have particularly like wanted uh, to inspire that uh but yeah. you know nonetheless it like it created a rupture that inaugurated kind of a new phase of like you know human uh, of civilization at least you know in the sort of yeah. uh, atlantic like world yeah, I mean, Haiti also, like, was in a longer kind of lineage of, like, slave revolts as well. But, yeah, obviously, yeah, the yeah. aspect yeah. of the American Revolution... Yeah, I'm but hearing the, a little the, bit of the, uh, some Hamilton uh, undertone mm -hmm. stirring uh, in the background right now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, um, I, I definitely. Uh, but I think it's it's really interesting to focus on this, like, for a second, because Paul Robeson's, like, approach... As a full-on, like, even though he was never in a party, I think, like, sentimentally, he was, like, a capital-C communist, basically, in terms of, like, what mm -hmm. he supported and everything. Even he, who was, like, the most kind of ideologically steadfast and pure and, like, well-read in, like, Marxist-Leninist theory, like, uh, try, tried to use his celebrity to like mainstream socialist ideas in a slightly sub rosa way but also wrapped in the flag and tried to propose kind of like an alternate conception of american patriotism that was actually rooted in more like socialist uh you know uh anti-elite like egalitarian yeah. values and well i think like he would probably have been the first i i never saw like his exact comments on like fdr but i would assume that he would based on everything else he said that he would point and actually in the kpfa interview he points out a lot when he talks about dictatorship of the proletariat uh he talks about like all the rights that had to be restricted during whole war ii when we were fighting fascism and kind of like analogize that to like the period of the russian revolution and building you know uh, fighting the russian civil war and like extreme measures that needed to be taken he also compared it to reconstruction and said that we basically had some kind of like it wasn't a dictatorship of the proletariat but it was kind of a dictatorship over the south after we run the war and he said you know in my personal opinion i think that dictatorship could have lasted much longer and so he actually like like advocates like he you know would have supported uh lincoln's policy of reconstruction but he would have like kept it in place for you know he would have actually 
you know, gone through a kind yeah, of like revolutionary kind of process sabotaged. and everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It was, it yeah. was canceled. Mm-hmm. It was, it was, a, it was like, it was trying to, there were, there was, you know, certain radical yeah. Republicans or whatever, like did want to socially reform. And for a while, you know, there were black senators, there were black congressmen and things like that. And then that all ended. Like people forget that people think it went from straight from like liberating the slaves to sharecroppers. But there was like basically a 10 year period where there was a lot of social experimentation going on. And in fact, like Marx, you know, in the letters he wrote to Lincoln during the war was like praising Lincoln uh, again. Like he was aware that Lincoln was like a bourgeois, you know, political leader in a, like a capitalist country. But there was a and, and I think it's fair to say that these were not kind of like opportunistic like weird trot entryism tactics, but were like very savvy and trying to get inroads where you can and make ground where you can. I think, I think Robeson was like singularly like very aware and astute about the type, the way in which you would have to sell socialist ideas to American audiences. Like you would have to pick a very particular tack. It gets into kind of a, a, an interesting uh, situation for um, on one hand you know paul robson did later on it embrace like uh kind of internationalism and like yeah. despite all these efforts like he was definitely seen as being like extremely anti-american uh which he was and he wouldn't have disputed like after the late 40s i mean yeah this is is, that's the thing is like this was only during world war ii when he had this idea of like socialism is 20th century americanism and stuff like after america started like blacklisting everybody he knew and persecuting him it was like uh actually i mean then he starts calling america fascist basically yeah, right? exactly. Or like that his struggle against American imperialism is a continuation of the fight against fascism, which is yes. yeah, an, an interesting yeah. kind of angle to take. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you don't want to uh, get too da- far down the road of like, no, what's wrong with socialism and nationalism? <laughs> like, what, you know, but uh, yeah, yeah. Robeson yeah, was not uh, about you know, that. He, uh, I mean, he was still doing it yeah, in the context uh, of like, we should unite in the international struggle against yeah. the nazis and the fascists right, right, and right. like no but i like, yeah, yeah i get i get uh, i get your point but it's also interesting like you know in terms of your comments about marx this is like kind of neither here nor there but you know uh in the context of the time it is interesting to consider i feel like you know marx like kind of he wrote approvingly even about like people like adam smith you know it is it's something i brought up before mm-hmm. i you know uh, our image of marx is influenced by the ideological ossification that happened like in the ensuing centuries like Mm -hmm. marx can be actually kind of seen as part of like the liberal tradition like more broadly like now like people will be like what like liberal like no like but like you know uh, both uh, both supporters and detractors of marx could you you could see reacting that way of like he's not a fucking liberal but like i know what you mean yeah it's an evolution of the liberal tradition it's like the next stage he was trying to find like the next advanced plateau of like the values of liberalism which he thought was i i would say generally he had like respect for the things that they claimed to to uphold but like his mm-hmm. critique was that you're not actually upholding these things like this masks yeah. an actual power system in which like the very few basically control the destinies of the many and like your laws like while they have some good intentions behind them are fundamentally set up you know to like reify private property and et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. right yeah. yeah um right yes uh yeah his critique of capitalism was also informed by like the theory of capitalism 
and like the you know his theory of capitalism built upon like you know more conventional like liberal economic theories of capitalism uh yeah and you know he was a student of economics like in in that respect as well as of philosophy and other things as chomsky but, said you yeah. know he was studying in the imperial uh, library and i think yeah, should exactly. have. i mean yeah. that's just as bad going to the library to read a book <laughs> is really not any different from being best friends with someone who like introduced a million toxic weapons uh to the vietnam war you know yeah like, yeah exactly going, exactly going to a library is the same as pffs with like john douche and, you know anyway that uh, that's who we're that's who we're left with when you blacklist somebody like paul robeson you're left with like the the crumbs at the bottom of the cereal box like relatively speaking uh, you know can you imagine um, like can you imagine like paul robeson just like firing off these like lazy fallacies and just like being like so smug and annoying and like no, easy to like can you imagine uh, robeson <laughs> like like debating Foucault my god oh I, I mean, would give even anything at, <laughs> even at like his lowest when you know he was like uh really struggling with his relatively justified fears of being t- a targeted individual and like yeah. in his mental health uh he probably like would not have been like you know uh whining about like how uh actually like Gordon McDonald like was a Vietnam War protester or whatever um <laughs> You know, uh, yeah, uh, no, no, you wouldn't have got any of that. Yeah, how, but you know, uh, he I mean, actually helped us fight global warming uh, by accidentally discovering uh, evidence of it during his efforts to develop weapons to destroy the ozone layer of Vietnam and <laughs> eradicate like all life bur- to uh, irradiate the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Exactly. Um, yeah. No such uh, uh, confusion but, here from from Paul. He's pretty yeah. consistent. Oh. Now 
машины девушки колхозы, Эх, та молодые наши села. Yes, with the Red Army, go the... 